your life? Hi. So uh, I studied as a classics major, and for the last uh, 15 or so years, I've been a professional troll online. <laughs> That's a pretty good start, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't think there's a shortage of trolling anywhere. What what uh, differentiates you from your trolling? <laughs> uh, I guess nothing in particular. Uh, I just try to be as vitriolic, uh, inflammatory, and uh, outrageous as possible with people and uh, see where that gets me. Do you think that you could be more vitriolic than the current uh, social justice warrior climate that exists? Absolutely. (laughs) Because you have to understand the current, let's say, tone and and strategies employed by Mm -hmm. social justice warriors online in doxing people or chasing them out of jobs or whatever. This is all things that were pioneered a decade or more ago online on places like 4chan and other places as well. And they haven't invented anything here. They're all just copy-paste. It's just Lack of originality. It is a a lack of originality. And what it is is essentially the democratization of what was before something for just nerds who went online and posted on image boards and forums. And now it's for everybody because everyone can read 140 characters on Twitter or post 140 characters on Twitter. And that's all that it's become. On top of that, um, it just shows a a degradation in the quality of trolling. (laughs) Not of trolling, but of online discourse in general. Because this is what it's become en masse and in general. Whereas before it was something that was really a subculture. It's it's now become pop culture. And I think that's unfortunate. Well, I think that that's like anything with time, right? Like you look at any underground aspect of something or something that isn't as commercially available or isn't as popular. And what we find is that these things are obviously cutting edge they're novel experiences right i remember um you know you're talking about online forums i remember i was on a, a football forum and i was i was young so it was interesting to get like different takes from all these different people and you yeah you have these what we would call in, in that in that like realm like the homers who they're let's say a, a cowboys fan and they're just you know there to toot the cowboys but then you had cowboys fans that had some fucking good knowledge on football, right? Now, this is something that you could apply to any topic, right? You have these trolls that come in and they're there with that one, you know, Homer uh, belief that whatever it is, whether it's some kind of political uh, idea or, you know, uh, philosophical idea or whatever it may be. But then you have the other people that maybe they're part of, they, they can be associated with a group, but they don't associate themselves as that group, they associate as maybe having one aspect of, example, an identity, a common identity piece, right? Um, but now, like you said, the vitriol and the uh, the ability to um, try and be, be be this aspect of whatever you want to centralize your identity around, right? What you end up having are people who clone things so it's not novel anymore it's repetitive the first interaction like you know i mean we kind of spoke a bit about this before you know 
Facebook, right? The the Facebook discourse. <laughs> you know, what kind of Facebook discourse you're gonna get? <laughs> well, that's the thing. Um, you don't get great discourse on right. Facebook because it's always people who, in the first place, they have probably no former interactions with each other. Right. So they have no basis, like on which to base how they should interact on they don't know i mean you're posting on a post uh, a headline from a story or whatever it might be uh, an image but you aren't coming from the same like if this was 15 years ago and you were posting on a political forum at least you have the assumption that you both have a similar base understanding of topics at hand right. whereas on facebook that doesn't exist then there's also the fact that how far are you willing to push things on facebook because there's that friend's connection and your identity is there so how honest of a discussion can you have with each other and and what what are you willing to say to each other based on this topic and i don't think it's a very good platform for discussions like that to take place at all uh uh, whereas I think Twitter is, I think you used a good way to describe it. It's it's almost predatory at this point. Uh, Facebook is just, it's it's muzzled, uh, and I, it's unfortunate that the vast majority of conversation takes place now on those two platforms, at least written conversation and discourse online. Um. Wouldn't you also say, though, that uh, the, due to the sensational nature of the time that we live in, in terms of informa uh, information distribution, that that also partakes that someone could be outraged at something without having no knowledge of it, right? Or someone can all of a sudden become an activist, you know? That is... You have people as part of their bios as social justice activists. Like, I mean, maybe you have people who are in grass, grassroots, you know, actual organizations. But how likely is it that of all the people that have that tag that they identify with, how many of them are actually advocate or put in time towards that goal, right? It's very popularized now. Well, I think that that is... Because there's been this question for a long time where's the money in the internet and and how are we going to monetize this and how are we going to monetize that and i think that that's the answer to it is essentially give everybody a platform to cry and whine and complain about yeah. and act special about and you're going to have congregations of people, whereas before you might have a forum for, I don't know, like emo kids who <laughs> really liked watching Inuasha or Bleach, I don't know, some anime. A very niche market right? at the time. And then it expanded with the advent of 4chan and Reddit and Tumblr and whatever uh, to, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. Now you've got Twitter and there might be 12 million of you. And... Now you've got people who can sell merchandise. Right. And they do nothing but post 
and repost things on Twitter or on YouTube, but they're going to sell you merchandise and you're going and they're going to make it. money. And and you're going to post about things and people are going to post about things and you're going to get trending and you're going to feel like you've accomplished something, but in the end you haven't accomplished anything. You're just feeding into the most pure capitalistic cycle that's ever transpired. Well, like big tech is internet. a huge topic that we can talk about if you want, but I kind of feel like that needs its own. Yeah, probably. Probably. But so, yeah, social media definitely allows for people to feel accomplished or like, I think obviously the, what we just mentioned basically pertains to virtue signaling, right? Everyone wants to feel that they are something by feeling accomplished in I was sorry or thankful or whatever, you know, like I'm um, anti-racism, like, yeah, guess what? 99% of the fucking world is anti-racist. <laughs> I think that's pretty well established. Like, I don't know. I went to school in Canada in the 90s here, like elementary school. And uh, anti-racist education was there from the beginning. It, it worked. Like, racist jokes get made. Stereotypes get uh, put out there. But And they're I mean, also awesome. <laughs> and, and Yeah, they are awesome. Like, where would we be without racist jokes? Look at Louis C.K. and Dave Chappelle, man. Exactly. Like, I'm sorry, but these things work. Okay, are are we going to ban Family Guy now because like they had the Kool Aid Man? Oh, they've tried. Or something. Remember, they tried a long time ago. Of course, and they're going to keep trying to ban all sorts of things. Right, but they shouldn't. And so, like, I don't know why you have to be like accomplished, or, like you're like an anti-racist advocate on like Instagram or something, and like because it's easy. Cares? It's easy. That's why it doesn't take any challenge. Like example, uh. Like, I'm anti-racist. Well, you know, again, like, good for you. So is the majority, overwhelming majority of the world. And, but you see that this is, I think, a product of 90s education where, and, and after that, but I think that's where it started, where kids were taught that as long as you were offended and you were wronged, you were entitled to an apology right. or some sort of reparation there right uh everything had to be fair and if you weren't treated fairly you felt then something had to be done about it on top of that um you have the idea that <clears throat> it's okay to be whoever you want to be or do whatever you want to do uh -huh. and there's no consequences to your choices in that regard so you can decide to just do nothing with your life and post about shit on Twitter and Instagram. And now you're oppressed. And, and yeah, now you're oppressed because you don't have the same opportunities as people who went to school. And, and worked. And worked, yeah. And so... So it's history's fault. It's history's fault. Only history's it's, fault. It's history. And it's because, you know, they're men, most of them. Or they're, <laughs> of course. they're white. And so you're being... Oppressed. And they're also straight. Don't forget straight. That's the most oppressive part. Right. And so you just have this, like, idea of oppression that's propagated and a lot of media does also um, encourage the idea that it's okay to be whoever you want to be and it is okay to be whoever you want to be of course but there are still basic things that you have to do in life to be successful or to 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 do anything and accomplish something and the idea that you don't have to do these things or fit into these stereotypes or regular roles at all in any way, shape, or form and still expect the same results as people who do is absurd. But So I think that this is all um, outgrowths of, you know, Jordan Peterson likes to uh, 
really toot this horn. And he says that it's all an outgrowth of uh, neo-Marxist uh, postmodernism. So neo-Marxist in the sense that, of course, cl- the distinctions in class, right? So all of your ailments, right, are because of another class other than your own because the majority of people are obviously in the middle, lower middle, and you know lower class, right? Because like you said, in order to succeed, right, like it has been for the majority of all, I mean, human time, except for now, right? We have so many uh, dummy-proof systems and foolproof systems that allow for people to continue to exist. I mean, we had something called natural selection. It's kind of being cheated right now. But uh, so we have um, all, all these uh, individuals who are not willing to do, like we, we live in a meritocracy. The world is a meritocracy. Yes, there's obviously things that happen that are not equal, right? The world is not meant to be equal. It's not, it's not, it's not built for equality. It's built for outcome, like cause and effect, you know? So you have uh, people who are um, unwilling to earn the merit, even if someone has an easier path, right? Which we can all agree happens. People have are born into circumstance, right? However, what are you doing to alter these circumstances, right? So it's easy to be an oppressed individual because you'll always find something to oppress. Newsflash, from the day you're born, you were once day closer to your death, on your best day, the next day, you're closer to your death. That's, that's true for everyone. It doesn't matter how high you are or how, how low you are. So because there's an overwhelming majority in the middle, lower, middle, and lower class, right? What you have is this Marxist take that all of your ailments are due to people above you. And it's very easy to play into one of the deadly sins, envy right? Because all these stem from pride. So because people are envious that people are well off or people are um, successful or, you know, don't have health issues or, you know, whatever it is, because people have envy, you could tap into that aspect of Marxism, right? Which is detached from uh, the reality that here, at least in the West, and as it has been, we earn what we have, the postmodern aspect is like you were just talking about. People uh, want to identify as things because it makes them feel good. You know, I identify as this. I am validated. But however, like our natural mechanisms for validation, as an example, like dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is built for motivation and satisf- satisfaction. Right? You want more dopamine because it satisfies you. You have to do things to, to get more dopamine. Now that's available through a swipe, right? Or through a tweet. Ah, I'm this now. I identify as this. But like you haven't done anything towards that. Now you don't have to do something to validate your existence, which no one is trying to dispute. But when your existence is tied into your identity and your identity is tied into your thought, this is a huge aspect, I think, you know, obviously being a classics major and you went through a variety of philosophical uh, teachings. I, I think Rene Descartes was really wrong when he says that I think, therefore I am. I think it should be I am, therefore I think. I think from that position, you know, like in the, in the Eastern philosophy where you have, as an example, you know, like uh, Buddhism, right? Where you're trying to kill the ego. 
But it's all these, if you want to call them Jedi mind tricks or these games that these masters play with their students because you can't kill your ego. You are an individual, right? If you, were, if you didn't have an experience in consciousness, there would be nothing to experience. Right. And I'm just going to say that metacognition was a mistake. Okay. And uh, we're a mistake. Uh, but moving we're on. a mistake what do yeah, you mean yeah no I, yeah i definitely think that humankind is metacognition is a great evolutionary like development okay but it's a mistake and we're going to be that predator that got too big and uh, had nothing left to feed on and died out from its own success and it's going to be a result of our ability uh, of our ability to metacognate but moving on from that <clears throat> I like that idea, um, actually. We should definitely go back to it at some point. Sometime. So, yeah, go on. Sorry. Yeah, as far as um, these people who identify as things, but they haven't done anything to it, uh, one thing that this democratization of, of like the online platform, it, which is great, but I think it's taken a negative turn here, is that they can do things to influence things. When enough people say, oh, I'm angry that this superhero isn't this color or this race <laughs> or, or isn't gay for whatever reason, uh, there's going to be a change made and it's going to happen and they feel like they've accomplished something. But have you accomplished something good? And what kind of movement are we taking in society? And what direction is it going in? And is that a positive one? And so I think this whole idea that just tell everybody to be different and ask for attention and be offended and everything to get things done, whether they're important or not, is taking us in a bad direction. Because, yeah. Well, I think that, you know, these... I d we can't argue that there's institutions of power. Of course there are, right? Like that, I mean, politics is that, right? I mean, I, I think at, from the outset, and this is kind of maybe where I align, align a kind of divulge my political leaning it's a little absurd to think that uh we accept the notion that we can't govern ourselves so we hire and and, and have people in higher positions than us who are people just like us that cannot govern themselves to govern us who can't govern ourselves well <clears throat> i mean the idea that we have people to govern us is like as old as yeah. not time itself, but as culture, as, society. Well, I mean, definitely. Right. Uh, as far as Even civilization goes. Hierarchies and, 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 and biology. Yeah. Tribal hierarchies certainly existed. And, but as far as civilizations existed, there's probably been some sort of hierarchy uh, in most situations, if not all. And that's clearly the format that society has decided succeeded evolutionarily for us and here we are i like your idea that you mentioned about us being too big yeah right and eventually we will falter i'm curious because there's a camp that seems to suggest that this is solely a inability to secure i mean not no so this, i'm mischaracterizing that there does not exist a capacity uh, to support X amount of people, whether it's 5 billion, 6 billion, 8 billion, 10 billion, whatever it is. 
I don't think that the issue is ultimately going to come down to a matter to sustain ourselves in terms of food source or even necessarily energy. Mm-hmm. It's that we're just going to get too far ahead of ourselves and something's got to give. But that's exactly my point. So yeah. I think it's not necessarily that we cannot uh, find, produce the resources necessary to sustain higher and higher numbers, but uh, that we're hubristic, right? Like the hubris, hubris is the fall of man. Well, at one point, or at which point in time, what point in time, do you think it's possible that a science experiment is going to have the ability to go wrong? And We're playing with a particle collider. And just give us a new moon or something. And I'm not saying that's how we're going to go. Right, of course. We move very fast. And we don't necessarily comprehend all of the forces we play with all the time. And well, at some point, I figure we're going to fuck up. Absolutely. But this is also um, part of the, the hubris aspect. Like, here we are, right, trying to go to, like, Mars. And it's nice to explore and understand these things. But people are so hubristic to think that we're okay Super volcanoes exist. Like our own planet will end life if it sees fit. If it sees fit. If if it comes to be, we go across an asteroid belt twice a year. If any of those things lands, that's a sizable chunk. Well, bye bye. You know. That's exactly it. I mean, life's transient, right? And, and human life is transient as a whole. Because you don't know what's going to happen. Um, which is why I think this whole climate change thing is a little funny. But um, Do you want to elaborate on that? Or is that another topic? That's a whole other topic. Okay, go on. So the trends of life. Um, but the idea that... Sorry, I've completely lost my train. Transience of life. So we're talking about hubris of man. Uh, right. And so... Anyways, I, I'm pretty sure we're going to screw it up because logistically, the idea that we'll reach a number of people that we can't sustain physically, is, I think it's, it's naive because we are that capable. But to believe that we won't reach a point where we've engineered some self-defeating. sort of virus or we are self-defeating as a species. Right. We're self-defeating. We're prone to conflict and... I know we're trying to weed that out of ourselves, but it's never going to happen. It's also, an int- like you said, I think that's another issue is that with this hubris, we think that we can just uh, absolve ourselves of natural conditions, right? I mean, but here you have a whole biology denial, right? Aspect of our, of our culture. There is the biology denial of our culture. And there's also the cultural denial of our culture like you have to understand that humanity is not just progressive modern western civilization trying to uproot itself from the sins of the past and move us forward into a better place there are a lot of other cultures very narcissistic it is and there are a lot of other cultures on earth very big prominent important cultures on earth that do not share the same goals beliefs ideas aspirations not even beliefs, just the goals and aspirations that these people do. And that is, it's 
Is there also a recipe for conflict that is There is the recipe brutal. for conflict there, but that's the thing. There's always the recipe for conflict because they're competing interests. And one other thing that uh, you wanted to mention, I think not wanted to mention, but you touched upon earlier and I wanted to mention something on, is that the reason we have, uh, right, uh, postmodernism and right. everything, um, you see... Conservatism is essentially the desire to keep things the same. Is it the same or is it just to conserve certain ideas and values? It's to conserve certain ideas and values. Now, the idea behind liberalism is to radically change. To change things. So, which platform there is going to make better use of an open and free space? a soapbox in right uh, obviously the liberal side of things because they're pushing something and they're seeking changes and they're giving people the chance to to make a change whether or not that's positive or not and the overwhelming majority of their uh individuals who lean that way are young individuals yes because younger individuals make more use of online platforms and technology and they're more vocal you and even if they aren't of voting age they still count in those statistics of aggregated users who feel this way or that about something online and that's kind of a weird challenge for conservative uh, strategists to overcome in the future is how can they make use of the internet in the same way or in a competing way? Well, I, it's already a space that's entirely dominated, almost entirely dominated by, um, like you said, liberal or you know left-leaning. Uh, I mean, look at Hollywood, look at like mainstream media. However, you have alternative media, which again, we didn't go into big tech, it's such a huge one, but I guess we'll talk, go over this. Like there's a massive amount of censorship Right, so how it's 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 so delusional to think we live in a free and open society when you're shutting down people's ability to disagree. Well, that's another thing that sucks about the huge congregation of users on platforms like Twitter or YouTube or Facebook or what have you, is that moderation on those platforms now affects the vast majority of users online, whereas. In the past, a forum or a community or for video games, the EA forums or whatever, their policies would only affect that segment. Whereas now if Twitter decides to ban all comments regarding X or Y, that affects hundreds of millions of users. If YouTube tomorrow decides to take down all gun content, Boom. That's, that's going to affect tens of millions of users. And you have no recourse for that because moderation is very much at the uh, discretion of the platform owners or moderators or whoever's in charge of that policy. And uh, that's another challenge to get over for conservatives is because if those platforms, Twitter or Facebook, decide they don't want to spread a questionable right-leaning content for whatever reason it is technically their right because they're a private company right 
And how do you go around that? Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask you, right? I was going to ask you, like, what are the self-regulating mechanisms? Because I, I don't know the answer to that. I could maybe spitball right now, but what I'm th- what I'm more worried about is what's going to happen. And already we see this, right? And especially, like, honestly, we live in, in, in Canada and every place in the world has its problems. But I really have a certain appreciation for America because it almost feels like it is the last passion of freedom, you know, where we have, obviously everyone has the ability in a majority of the world, you know, to self-determination. But what I mean by this is that you try and take guns away from people in Texas and good luck, you know? Well, I wouldn't say it's the last. I'd say it's the only, and it's always only ever been the only. I like that a lot, man. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, because the United States was founded on a series of principles. Irrevocable principles. And, and they are irrevocable. It's got, because um, as a classics major, I got to study a lot of the founding constitutions of like Western civilization. Correct. Yeah. And I, and as a person Plot. who's interested in politics in general, uh, I've, I've read and looked at a few constitutions and like just generally the tenets that make them. And they all come from law. No, but they, none of them give the inalienable freedoms and, equality that's enshrined in the United States Constitution. And it does ensure a free as in so far as a it's written a state could be free and the people within a state could be free. It's the best we've ever done. And that's why the US is the only I like that free state. And I mean there are always going to be efforts to change this and to, to encroach on the freedoms of the people but they have a much better starting position than others like the united kingdom or canada or australia look look what's going on with australia right now well i don't know too much about what's going on in australia but i know they have some lockdowns and stuff yeah super heavy martial law lockdowns and again i haven't because honestly i haven't seen much from australia in a long time well i know they're taking it very very seriously right that's unfortunate but anyways well we can get into that if you want yeah so i'm going to get into that let's do it covid absolutely believe that uh, in the event of a serious pandemic we should lock down everything and people's inalienable rights serious i think should be revoked like i'm going to give you some context here though the the plague in europe killed in any of its various outbreaks between 30 and like 60 percent of the populations percent 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 we're looking at a virus now that's killed in total three percent of total infected people and uh, frankly we all know that that's mostly due to inadequate and poor comorbidities and well not just comorbidities but a lot of it is due to just shitty quality of care in in the world because like uh, like with uh new york and california like governor cuomo like he had a book about like how to like properly handle covid but wasn't he responsible for like i, I don't know the exact figure but like 
a whole slew of elderly individuals. He just basically killed them off. That's what happened in a lot in Europe. That happened. Okay, like in, it, like in Italy, Canada. right? Uh, well, in Spain, I believe it was in Spain. The government, well, the military went around to different old folks' residences uh, to offer care and support at some point during the pandemic. I forget exactly when this was. And they found that in many instances, the staff had just left and left the residents to die. That's wild. Whether of corona or starvation or heat or whatever the hell it may have been, uh, they all died. And That's terrible. I didn't even hear about that. The same situation happened in France where you had examples of workers abandoning uh, residences. Uh, In Canada, we also had examples of that. Uh, where companies just de-staffed residences and left them for a week or two at a time without anybody to take care of the people there. This is documented? Yeah, this happened in Quebec, if I recall correctly. Wow. Yeah, and it's... If you look at the statistics for deaths in Europe and North America anyways, we had more deaths in the first few weeks of corona than we do now despite drastically lower caseloads and that's in part because it was hitting the most vulnerable segment of the population but also in part because those segments of the population were receiving poor or no care and as time goes by we're seeing that it's not quite as bad as it was i mean we live in montreal We're seeing regularly over a thousand cases a day here now, right? Does it make any fucking difference? It doesn't, like, things seem to be exactly the same way they were in April or whenever when we were experiencing 200 cases a day or whatever it was. I I don't know. Hospitals, Hospitals even are announcing the same rates of patients despite the 10 time increase in daily case. So, to me, it seems like a non-issue. We're destroying ourselves economically for no reason whatsoever. Not no well, reason whatsoever. Okay, so uh, not that I want to put on the tinfoil, but, I mean, you, you did see, like, the in, in Parliament when they were talking about internment camps, right? I did not catch that. Okay, so uh, I think it's, it's Randy Hillier, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and he brought up, in this new doctrine that the government was proposing that they're going to have internment camps for people with COVID, right? But then, I mean, there was another document that was leaked and, you know, how, how you know, you know, veritable is this? We, we know there's a lot of things that go on the internet, but it was talking about a global reset. And now you have Trudeau talking about a reset and how, how soon, and we have, we have other people talking about vaccine passports, you know, this is, I don't, I, I mean, I hate to break it to you guys. This is Nazi Germany t- so, 2.0. Vaccine passports, I don't think is going to happen. Uh, internment camps may have been talked about, but like internment camps are a popular topic for a lot of things. You'll notice with governments all over the place because it's an easy solution to house a lot of people that need to be keeps kept segmented from the rest of the population. Um. Trudeau's Great Reset, though, 
That's stupid. I mean, it's predictable, and I I saw it coming, and I think a lot of people saw it coming because it's exactly the sort of thing he would do. It's, okay, guys, so uh, let's reimagine society because uh, now it's uh, oh, Corona's over and we've got to dole out money to everybody because everyone's bankrupt anyways, so let's do things my way. And uh, it's frustrating but to, to see the government tackle topics that are of such little importance to us. And that's all. I think he's the least effective prime minister in Canadian history, both foreignly uh, and domestically. I mean, he's. I think he's done way more damage. I, mean, I wouldn't even say least effective. I think he's been a burden to society. And I mean, look at the, the scandal. Like, it's just scandal after scandal. He's corrupt. Trudeau managed to... Yeah, exactly. The Liberals lost power after however many consecutive years and because of scandals. And uh, what did we get with Trudeau is more scandals. And it doesn't quite make sense why he enjoys any popularity at this point. Um, he's, he's a prime minister of no substance. From the day he was elected up until now, Trudeau has done one thing and just one thing, and that's campaign. He's very good at campaigning. How amazing is it that coronavirus is this thing that we have to shut down economies for and shut down the world? And then you have a BLM protest, and this guy is around 15,000 people taking a knee. Yeah, because... It's called pandering. Yeah, it's called campaigning. Campaigning. It's ah, okay, important. I'm sorry. Trudeau, Trudeau, <laughs> Trudeau started campaigning for the office of the prime minister and then he never stopped yeah. it's like any given day he thinks there's going to be an election even though there is it's people kind people right <laughs> yeah i mean if there's ever anything that you should base someone on on like one particular sentence you should do that i mean you know that just tells you everything no, you need to know about you sorry oh he's yeah he's had a lot of gems going to india and and dressing like that <laughs> while they're all dressed in suits that that <laughs> took the cake. the cake. I can't imagine what the fuck was going through his mind when he did that. But that's he just has ridiculous. A mind? On top of that, he soured relations with, and it's not like I'm going to like uh, fanboy for Saudi Arabia or China. But how the fuck did he sour relations with Saudi Arabia and China to this extent, where like? We don't currently have diplomatic relations with either country, as far as I'm aware. And those are massive powers. Right? It's kind of important to have diplomatic relations well, look, with the two of them. Look at what everyone's saying about Trump. He stepped foot in fucking North Korea. Trump was not the greatest president, but in terms of U.S. foreign policy, Trump could have done a lot worse. I mean, he played... For, for a businessman? For, for all of the bullshit people give him about Russia and collusion with Russia, he's the only U.S. president to, like, strike and kill Russian citizens in since fucking when. What? Yeah, the U.S. bombed uh, Russian mercenaries uh, with Syrian SAA troops in Syria and killed a bunch of them. What? I didn't know about this. Yeah, but they were mercenaries. They weren't soldiers, so it's kosher. It doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, he also struck directly Assad military bases in Syria. I mean, he gave Russia warning. 
but you don't want to strike Russian military troops, so that's fair. Uh, he took a surprisingly harsh stance on Russia, and I'm sorry. Um, How crazy is that they're still trying to... I didn't know these things, but they're trying to say he's in collusion with Russia? He sold, he sold heavy weapons to Ukraine, which is something Obama was refusing to do. And uh, you'll notice that for most of Trump's presidency... Ukraine was pretty quiet. No crazy uh, Russian advancements or separatist advancements or anything happening in Ukraine. He also did. Russia was relatively hard on Russia. Uh, Trump was relatively hard on Russia, uh, which is not something I'm super great about, but US conservatives should be ecstatic. Well, he's also really hard on China. He's extremely hard on China, which is great and something we need. And he did take great strides in diplomatic relations with North Korea. And it's funny that the Obama made zero strides in diplomatic relations with North Korea, but Bush and Trump did. Um, so, and he didn't get into any new wars. He kind of increased U.S. involvement in Yemen, but he didn't open up any new theaters of conflict for U.S. troops. So that's great because he wasn't a wartime president. He inherited a bunch of bullshit from Obama and he just stuck with it. He didn't create any new problems. He didn't make any huge, humongous pushes and lose a lot of U.S. lives. He tried to keep everything low-key. Where would you say that he failed as a president? I don't think that Donald Trump could have done any better at the job than he did, given who he is. He, <laughs> he, the areas in which he failed at being president are so superficial. They're not that so, they're so superficial. It's that they're the opposite. He failed because of who he ah, is as a person at right. his core. And there's nothing more he could have done. I think, though, that... They could have had a worse president in Hillary Clinton. Oh, my goodness. And all things considered, it went fine. It wasn't the apocalypse. And it, one thing... It wasn't the apocalypse at all. One thing I was I was really thinking about, though, and I'm thinking about this, like, obviously retroactively. You see the polling, and you know that it's not going to be the way they were describing Biden just running away with it, because I think that a lot of people, particularly, like in maybe Canada and, and the U.S., where the conservatives are a bit more strong as opposed to the rest of the world, right? I assume the rest of the Western world, I should, I should specify. But you have uh, in, in, in the U.S., you have a significant amount of people who uh, are still going to vote for Trump. And, and again, the conservatives gain ground with, as an example, the African-American uh, the the black vote and the Latino vote, you know, uh, and he lost some white votes, which is interesting, except for white women. White women voted a bit more for him. But you see these polls and they distort you. And when we had the election, right, and we had the options, like I wouldn't go for sheer. I, I wouldn't, I, I hated Trudeau. What I would have done is I would have gone for um, Bernier. Uh, me too. But I, what I'm trying to get at here is how much did the polls really affect, you know? The polls are not great. And that's what you're seeing with why all these uh, organizations have poor 
uh, fuck, results like, or like outcomes of their, their outcomes polling of data? Their polling data, exactly. Because the polls are not really that representative. You're polling a lot more young people in general, I think. And on top of that, uh, conservatives are a lot less willing to divulge yep. their political leanings or who they might vote for because they just don't feel safe. It's like at the point where essentially saying I'm going to vote for Donald Trump is equated to being a Nazi. Right. And you could lose your job. Well, like, I mean, they're actually creating a list of those who worked with Trump, you know, yeah. or who were vocal about Trump support and they're yeah. going to be blacklisted. Yeah. And so obviously when you're polling people, they're not really going to feel forthcoming in their uh, support for Trump or conservatives in general in those uh, situations. And that's unfortunate because it shouldn't really be to that point. But like you said, it's predatory. I mean, that, that's what it's come down to. Uh, the discourse online and in general, it's, it's extremely predatory. And so why are you going to associate yourself with a group that you know is going to suffer you know yeah su suffer uh really prejudice and and um and on, on most occasions violence like and that's another thing trump i don't think so i love that I he put antifa as a, as a terrorist group by the way too and i don't think that we should see that latino and black and like white uh, female voters uh voting as pieces more for Trump, no, but they, I don't think we should interpret it more as they voted more for Trump uh. Uh, or even more for conservatives. I think it's more that they voted for safety and against the anarchy being propagated by the left at the moment because these are people who are not all right with what's happening. Well, I mean, if you ask most, like, black people the ones that actually live in the ghetto, they don't want no cops around. Defund the police. I mean, okay, we could kind of get into that because we've, I remember we've had a couple of uh, conversations along that. So when it comes to defunding the police, no one in a low-income or crime-ridden area would want that unless they were a criminal or they were misinformed. I, I don't think... Anybody really wants to defund the police except for Twitter activists? <laughs> well, look at Portland. Uh, Portland's a place. Portland is going to have emptied out its police force within, like, by the end of next year. But even, like, in New York, right, where we had a, a few isolated incidents in New York and other places, cops were, were, were leaving en masse mm -hmm. because they didn't feel safe. And that's not the kind of environment you want in your city. In your country. No, anywhere. like, I don't know, you, you live in Laval, I live in Montreal. Yeah. Uh, and I live in a nice area in Montreal, and you, I think most of Laval is pretty nice. But do you want no cops? No. No. And, 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 and so I, I think this whole, like, I, I'm obviously not in favor of defunding the police. I think if anything, you need to fund, I think if anything, we need to fund everything more except for bureaucracy, you know? That's a great point. We should... Definitely defund bureaucracy. Look at look at as an example, um, political ins uh, political school uh, schooling institutions, particularly in the United States, right, and particularly the ones that are very expensive to go to. You find that 
the majority of the inflation in price, aside from certain places where it's like um, uh, it's it's uh, prestigious, right? So there's a certain price tag associated with it. And even these places, what you find is that it's the bureauc- bureaucratic aspect of it where you have deans of diversity and inclusion and this and that. And these are all bloated positions because they're never like as it is with power. The government's never going to walk back power. Once they have something over you, they're never going to walk it back. Yes. And I think that's one area where, because the, the, it's funny because those are private institutions, right? right. But um, yeah, in general, private institutions do better with that than public institutions. Bureaucracy, you mean? Yeah. Okay. But as we're seeing now, that's not necessarily the case because that's also a trend we're seeing in a lot of tech companies too that have uh new chief executives like or whatever that are for inclusion and diversity and like equality and all of these other things and uh, community outreach on these topics and it's not necessary and i mean it's just a, a product of what we've already talked about and what's occurring online how are you doing on time i'm good on time good okay um so yeah uh as far as positions like that go in government and police and funding it's a tough shell to crack well i think that when it comes to obviously as i mentioned we need to fund, if anything, more the police because there's a certain lack of... I wouldn't say, like, because we've we had this conversation, I agree with you. I, it took me a little time to see that approach because, and, and uh, funny enough, we were talking about Crowder before. Crowder is another guy that kind of changed my, my mentality on it about hitting center mass, right? I mean, it's it's very movie-esque to think that someone could shoot someone in a non-lethal position in the leg or something like that, you know, uh, as are running full speed, under duress, like, these are very, you know, loaded situations that you're trying to put people in. And it's not that it's impossible for somebody to do this, but, I mean, for example, consider the risk that the officer is putting himself in, because if you've got a suspect with a firearm and you want to immobilize him so you're going to try to shoot him in the leg doesn't mean he's not going to shoot you back right next your leg it just because you've shot somebody in the leg or in the arm doesn't mean they're not going to die from it femoral artery right so now they've got to apply uh first aid to that and they still have to disarm the suspect what if the suspect decides to struggle? The suspect might have a knife on him that the, the officer hasn't found. It's creating a situation where the officer's in more danger than they need to be in. And also the general public that might be around them. Well, I, I do think there is a certain aspect of overreach. And I think this is why we see a massive amount of police brutality is because, and, and, and this is where my stance is, is that just because something is against the law doesn't mean it's morally wrong. Right and laws like look we have example we have more more in the states right you have generations of people who are rotting behind bars because 
they smoked weed. Now, distribute something different, right? We're not in, in that conversation, but let's say someone who, who smoked weed, right? And psychedelics is another issue we could, we could go into, right? Or psychoactive compounds. But here you have, at the base, someone who's willing to explore with the consciousness. And we're not saying smoking weed and driving recklessly or, or driving, period. But someone who's walking home after a shift and smoking a joint to unwind and go and relax, yeah, so legalize. But <laughs> um, other than that, the issue with police brutality, I mean, police, police brutality and police murder or like, um, are two different things. Civilicide? Civilicide. Does it work like that? <laughs> Officer-involved homicide. There you go. Um, are two different topics, but officer-involved homicides aren't really that big. And it's not like they're overly... Racist. I mean, so these, I think these are two important things to do. There's like what a thousand one hundred something people that are killed by police in the United States every year. I think it's less than that. It's less than that, maybe. Yeah, but, maybe it's but the numbers, and this is kind of surprising considering the, the claims. Dramatic. No, but just considering how dramatically other statistics uh, like this are skewed, it's pretty even between white and black uh, victims. And it's more, it demonstrates more, I think, the fact that officers do use lethal force. Generally, not always, when appropriate, on criminals. And you see the relatively equal split as a proportion of where geographically across the United States, each segment of the race comprises the majority of the criminal element, which is not all black people in every part of the United right. States. Right. I think that's what you're seeing. I might be wrong there. But either way, it's not like cops are going out to hunt black people but, and kill them. But but this is it. You have LeBron James. You know, you're talking about someone who influences a, a massive amount of people, not just black people, not just people maybe like him who came from a low-income place, right? And they could associate with him. People that like basketball or people... And by the way, ba NBA lost a massive amount of viewership because... The NBA viewer... Oh my fucking God, bro. It's, Did it's, you see that? But, but it's... Okay, we'll get into like the corporatocracy of morality in, in just a second. But like you have LeBron, LeBron James telling people that white cops go down and hunt black people like... That's like he literally equated it to like he woke up and his kid said something or his wife said something to him and he's like I'm gonna go kill a black guy like that's crazy and you can't say it the other way around you know you can't say as an example that some black guy you know whether it's a black cop or whatever but some black guy woke up and his wife said something he's like I'm gonna go kill a white person you know why because that's fucking crazy even though you have instances. Where people, like there was a, a stabbing incident in Florida, and this is an isolated case, but this is what this kind of rhetoric spews. You want to talk about hate speech, right? If you're really uh, into that, you have people going out and like uh, this dude, like I don't know where it was. It was Florida. It was somewhere in some part of the United States, Louisiana. I don't know where it was. And he went and he stabbed someone because he felt like he had to kill a white person. He said that the cops, maybe he was high on drugs. Maybe it's possible. It's Florida. So anything's possible. <laughs> there you go. Florida, man. It's... The best phenomenon. Yeah. The shit that they do, it's just incredible. But 
Um, Florida is like what? Florida, I guess, is like our equivalent of Russia. The Westerns equivalent <laughs> of Russia. I don't know what Flor- Florida is like. Just in and of itself, its own phenomenon. It's incredible. Yeah. It was once explained to me online. I think. Oh, no, at least I read it or I watched it online. I have no source for this, but basically, it's the way Florida is shaped. So all the destinations in Florida are like towards the bottom. So these people work their way to the bottom. And all the fucked up ones don't make it and get lost along the way or get lost along the way back. And they're just stuck in the peninsula of Florida. And they now they're just lost. I it's guess like Bangkok has them now. Well, Florida has. <laughs> I guess it's like the equivalent. Did you ever play Fallout? Uh, no, not much. Okay. Three was the last one I played. Oh, so. well, yeah. I mean, that's the last one I played too. But basically, that's at, they just absorb the flor- floridic radiation and they become death claws. Yeah, yeah <laughs> high exactly. On, high on jankum and fucking bath salts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Crashing yeah. into fucking in and out burgers and shit, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That that sums up Florida. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but, but, so, as for funding police, I don't, like necessarily think they might need more funding it's more an allocation of where that funding is going and i think that also how we're using that uh, like you mentioned like all those people in jail for weed and whatever like we're misusing a lot of police resources and resources which by the way like for those who are clamoring that you know biden and and kamala harris and this whole return to normalcy bullshit that they're trying to espouse to get you to defuse their ticking time bomb that they set they're the people that wrote off on the tough on crime bill yeah and Anne clinton and hillary clinton and kamala harris was a pr- prosecutor. prosecutor yeah and she put away innocent men and laughed just, about it yeah she she's not a good person and i feel bad for the united states uh under it's President scary kamala harris because, because that's what it is. That's what's going to happen. And Vice President Nancy Pelosi. Uh, no, I, I mean, for a short time, maybe, yeah, I guess. But I hope Nancy Pelosi dies of excitement the day that she's supposed to be sworn in as Vice President. Because, like, fuck that. Well, she's 84, right? So it's only a matter of time. Yeah, but we've been saying that since she was, like, 74, so. Yeah, well, good morning. <laughs> <laughs> but so. it's it's just terrible. And it's sad to see that, like, again... What it, I mean, we still haven't gone to the corporatocracy of morality, which is an interesting topic. But here you have, you know, these individuals who are demonstrably bad. They're terrible. And not to say that maybe Trump hasn't done things in the past. I mean, I don't know. Like, but it's hard to, like, there's so much accusations with not that much actual proof. Of... Well, that's the thing. You don't need proof. You just need accusations. Right. And a lot of people sell themselves. The Me Too so, culture, right. right? And, I mean, Trump, yeah, he did all these terrible things, maybe, and he's a terrible person, but uh, it worked for him because he was a no-nonsense, get-the-job-done, say-what-he-thinks, say-what-he-means kind of guy. He was a bad boy, and it worked. <laughs> but, um, but this is why he played against him because they used that aspect of his nature and they got people to hate him so much that they the, exactly yes. the same way he won against Hillary. Yes, outrage culture really came and hit him hard, and it that's that's ultimately one of the reasons he lost. It, it's ultimately it comes down to never Trump, right? Exactly. But uh, 
they could have had a worse president. Uh, and, oh my and, goodness. and I'm grateful they didn't because I wasn't looking forward to that. And I mean, even now, Biden and Harris is not, uh, I'm not thrilled. Oh, very scary. But now it all depends on, on the how. Because w- when we last spoke about that, right, it looked like the house was going to be won entirely by uh, the conservatives. Right? Or not entirely, but that they're going to win the majority. Yeah. And now they have the Georgia runoff. And if they lose that. Well, it's going to be tough if the U.S. goes from a Trump presidency to like Democrats controlling superpower, everything, right? Super. Uh, was it? Was it there's a specific term it's for it. Super. I don't. Super legislate or super. I don't know. But something like that. If they hold all three, it's going to be. Well, they don't have the the Supreme Court anymore. But at this point, no, it's going to be. But that's kind of like irrelevant. Irrelevant after. and. If they hold all three, I think it'll be tough because they're going to try to do radical changes, and it's going to be like the U.S. equivalent. Sorry, the U.S. equivalent of Trudeau's Great Reset, and it's not going to play out super great, I think. But it, the thing about U.S. politics is, um, it's all superficial. Uh, yeah. On the bottom, nothing really changes. Right. So there was a, going to be no. As far as the the longevity of U.S. institution was concerned, between Obama and Hillary and Trump and Bush and Biden and Harris, none of that really changes. It's just superficial. Right now, typically, the person who wins the presidency is going to just pander to their base and their party's interests and try and get a bit more. But they keep everything calm, you know. Copacetic. But uh, Trump was not calm, and he pandered to entirely new base and interests. But uh, in the end, nothing really changed. But uh, we'll see how it goes with Biden and Harris, but I don't expect anything radical, but it's going to be a difficult transition if they have that majority in the House and in the Senate and they have that presidency and what kind of changes they're going to push because it could work. I mean, like, obviously it'll work. They're going to push them. But what's the pushback going to be from the rest of the country, uh, especially now that California is bankrupt? Um, well, this is always what I was kind of worried about. And, and recently I've thought about it this way, right? I, we always viewed, and maybe you could correct me because you, you know more about, like, foreign affairs than I do, but um, I've always viewed that World War Three was going to be an, intra-country conflict, right? Where you're going to have, you know, us versus the states. That was the Cold War, right? But I really think that particularly, and who knows, there's so many different aspects of culture that are being espoused that are very much, you know, socialist, hard socialist, communist uh, uh, derived ideologies but recently, I've been feeling like World War Three is going to be an entirely domestic experience. I don't think so. I think that you're going to have... Because it, it just has been building up for a long time. And you have it every year, every summer across Europe and in North America, riots and protests and whatever. And I think that's going to continue until it boils over to a point where it has to end. Eventually, it's going to have to end. 
they're not going to let them go on uh, crazy, uh, let's burn this town and then this city and then this city and then this city every night for like six months straight in the summer uh, forever. But you are going to have that explosion and conflict between the government uh, and the people. Government and, well, not necessarily people, but the activists and the, the revolutionaries behind this Antifa whatever you want to call but it. Or, and in and in Europe, the same might be true, but uh, with conservative groups, depending on what country. Although we'll see how that plays out in like Hungary and Poland, whether they push against them or go with them, who knows. But even in the UK and in France, probably, I, I sense eventually people are going to just, like the common man, people who are not interested in going out every fucking day to set cars on fire and businesses on fire and throw fucking shit at police and whatever are going to get worn down and fucking sick and tired of it and enough is enough. Well, I think but I think that's why it's so important to have our ability to to be armed. I mean, you have cops that are not even responding to like these these areas in the short term, yes. It is absolutely, it would be convenient to be armed and have the right to defend yourself and your property and your family. But... In the long term. In the long term, it doesn't make an incredible difference in this situation, I think, because the state is going to crack down on it once it reaches a certain point. But that's what really worries me, is the state. Now, like, people are suckling at the teeth of the state. And so what we see is that instead of having, you know a sense of like personal responsibility, right? You're putting the responsibility of safety upon the people that you've elected or whoever. Yes, you are. But unfortunately in the, and I don't want to use the term, but we'll call it social contract. Right. Uh, outside of the United States and pretty much every other like Western nation, that's kind of what you signed up for. And it's not even signed up for. It's just implicit. You have no way around it's it. Imposed, yeah. Yeah, I exactly. It's imposed. And that's unfortunate. But What scares me, though, is that it, it'll eventually get to the point, like you said, where it'll either spiral out of control one way or the other. The authoritarian, you know, big brother uh, government or total anarchy, lawlessness. Uh, but what worries me more, uh, the lawlessness for sure is crazy, but I think that you could call, you could create coalitions to survive particularly against very weak individuals like that. Numbers is definitely an issue, but I think that what we really should be worried about is these military men and these police officers, they have families to go back to and, and they have jobs that they agreed upon. Like, if the government says, like, all right, you got to take these guys out, you know, like, look at the uh, Nazi Germany, right? When when they took over, like, Poland, right? And you had these these people who were regular people, they were just following orders, you know, and just following orders is a very dangerous mentality to have. Well, I think, I mean, obviously that's possible. Anything can happen. Right. But I, I'd like to think that where we are now, the probability of it happening is very small because we are in general, I guess, a more ethical and less violent conflictual no less obedient society than say 1930s 1940s germany okay 
But that doesn't hold true necessarily. Like in the States, it certainly holds true. But how much less obedient are we in Canada? I don't know. But are we more ethical? Certainly. And on top of that, uh, whereas the... Because for all intents and purposes, the German military was dismantled after the war. And so... I just pull up the mic? Oh, yeah. So... You could just turn it if you want a little bit. Yeah. So because for all intents and purposes, I suppose the German military was dismantled after the First World War. Um, the police services stayed intact. But you were looking at an entirely new regime. Right. And authoritarian or totalitarian or whatever fascist government and bureaucracy and military institutions. Whereas now we have They're a existing. lot of continuity. They exist. Yeah. You, it's It's more difficult to just change how things function so while that's always a concern for me and i'm always worried about it i i think that the risk is a lot less here um yeah like as an example with this great reset right and uh, from what I, that little leaked uh, email there I have you read the leaked email where no, i didn't read an email so i, I mean I'll, I'll find it for you and i'll send it to you but essentially it goes into like some liberal uh cabinet Okay. Member and they were talking about like this great reset and whatever and essentially the whole idea is that there's going to be this great reset that uh, people will have like will get a universal basic income so all this time that we've spent where we're not able to make money you're making two two thousand dollars a month like some people like that's just it's just not enough I mean and and, and you have people have businesses they have expenses like it's crippling that they have their business expenses and then their own personal expenses. Right? So you have this great reset that's basically with the advent of universal basic income uh, combined with a type of health pass uh, where according to your vaccination schedule, you will then be able to receive health health treatment uh, and, and you'll be able to uh, engage in different aspects of society, Right. Otherwise, you will not be able to engage in, in different aspects of society because you're going to be deemed as a health risk to those who are not, okay? Um, and through this, essentially, people will... Also, part of this reset is they're going to forgive your debt, whatever debt you have, which you're accumulating now. Impossible. It's not happening. You don't think so? No. This, I don't care. It, it, this is, first of all, the the health pass thing, according to your vaccination schedule, it wouldn't fly, I don't think, under any circumstances, uh, legislatively or in court, in the Supreme Court. Uh, I mean, I might be wrong. I'm probably wrong because I'm always disappointed. <laughs> but I think they have precedents uh, in Quebec law that uh, you could, they could, force someone to take a vaccine i saw it pop up a you, while it you, could be they do have precedents to force somebody to take a vaccine i don't think they're going to force the entire country to take this vaccine but the entire country but has they, to be opposed to it if they're might. divided on the on the issue they might force it i hope not because i don't plan on taking it for the record neither, neither do i yeah and but no i think that imposing this especially when they can't have a, a definite timeline on how it can be distributed and how many people and how long it'll take. I think segregating society like that on the haves and haves nots wouldn't fly. 
on top of that. I'm just worried. I I, I worry about the world we enter. Yeah, on top of that, debt forgiveness will not fly. I'm sorry. Uh, Canadian households are like the most indebted in the world. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, we have been since the last Great Recession. We took In 2008? Yeah. Okay. We have been since then. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And... like debt to income ratio is like 160 something percent. Oh my God. Yeah, it's not great. There's no way all of that's being forgiven. On No, it's impossible. The because universal basic income thing, I, I don't think is going to happen. If anything was going to come with this, that might. But ultimately, I just expect a whole lot of shitty tax reform and stupid social plan like, to give out money to people and invest money into stupid, useless community outreach and art projects and yeah. climate change initiatives, and that's it. I, again, the only thing I worry is that... And diversity. We can't forget diversity. There's going to be so much diversity. <sighs> we're going to fucking explode <laughs> from diversity. <laughs> that we're going to have culture coming out of every orifice. Yeah. But I just worry a lot that this new world that we're entering is a world in which... Everyone is a robot. There's n- everyone appeals to authority. It's against the programming. You well, know? absolutely. And while I guess coming to terms with authority is a part of life, yes, this is not what that means. This is taken to a whole other level. And I'm not comfortable with it personally because I like to challenge things and challenge people. And this isn't how it should be but there's another aspect that a lot not like it's being talked about a bit more these days you know particularly from what i i I go after and this is what influences my thought is that there's there's an assault on masculinity um and like you said earlier like how traditional sex roles or you know people's uh ability to uh, identify is viewed as oppressed because people have um biology as tenants of what they, they go along well it yeah, i wasn't even talking specifically about sex or gender roles but oh. just roles in society like oh okay you can't just decide that you want to do nothing and work at starbucks part-time and like watch a lot of like french Netflix. neo postmodern uh. whatever cinema online and uh post shit on twitter and fucking reddit and uh now it's it's because like society is sexist because you're bisexual and that's that's why <laughs> you you aren't a yeah. millionaire. And yeah. When when there's only fans and you could fucking literally have a monthly subscription to show your ass. Oh my god! But I feel so bad because, like, only fans. Yeah, it's it's a thing now. But eventually, one day, it's gonna dry up, guys. People are gonna stop. Like, it's I think only fans is a fad though. Maybe like, it's mad money now, but I think it's a fad. And just like for all these other online fads. I feel bad for the people who don't figure don't. it out before. <laughs> I don't. Fuck you, man. Give up your mansion. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> you fucking show. You spread your ass cheeks for that mansion. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> but that's true. But what I'm trying to get at is like, like you said, like you're someone who disagrees. Like now, disagreeing is like, like if you disagree with someone, and they're Asian or they're black. Like I, I remember I had this conversation recently, and it, it was a very really bizarro like twilight world you know conversation it just really signified the time the times i made a a a criticism of intersectionality and then because it was someone that i know that lives actually in oregon i think actually live in portland as well but they could not be living there i'm I'm not too sure but they live there 
and uh, they're studying as part of their um, naturopath uh, education. They're studying uh, intersectionality. And I was like, what the fuck does intersectionality have to do with naturopathy? So I said, like, this is a very... I, I made a critique on it. I don't remember exactly what I said. I actually have the pictures. I could read the conversation if that's ever something that would be interesting. But then you have these fervent identify like uh, uh, um, supporters of intersectionality saying that uh, I have privilege. Like, how crazy is that? I have privilege and that uh, I'm a heteronormative, cisgendered white man. Like... And that you don't understand other people's experiences, but you literally just disqualified any of my experiences based on you. You're literally intersectionalizing someone just because you think that they have a a, a better intersection than you. Mm-hmm. It makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't know. I, I understand. So this that. is cultural Marxism, I believe. Yes, it is. I understand the the idea that some people have better opportunities presented to them in life than others for sure obviously i mean we aren't all born into the exact same opportunities that's that's how life works i'm sorry guys like we didn't sign up for this it's just how the game works like it's like gravity it's there live with it fuck (laughs) (laughs) well look i think it's very important like we haven't really gone to the blm and that's a messy situation but i think just to keep it very succinct um there are consequences of history, but not all present situations are directly related to historical events. Yes. Things happen over time. Yeah. There are some things that are cumulative and like you could track down like what started it, but did it really start it if it took a hundred years? And, and again, like the whole premise, like you have to talk about like the premise of something, right? I mean, you literally have BLM is run by like uh marxists classically trained yeah proud marxists yeah it is and blm is it's like their wet wet, wet dream because <laughs> now they get to be relevant and like oh we're we're enacting social change and it's a great way for people who don't have anything else to do and like yeah a lot of them they feel oppressed and they think this is going to help but that's just because they don't know any better so you've got the Marxists taking advantage of people who don't know any better. And then you've got all of the younger generation of Marxists uh, who are generally white who are taking part because they want... Guilty white liberals, I think, is the correct term. Yeah, and they're taking part because they want to feel relevant and like we've made a change and yeah, we threw a Molotov at that cop tonight. I feel great about that. Like, yeah, good for you, but... That's not the kind of change, you know what I mean? Like, if you think black people are facing, like, systemic inequalities in education and you want to do something about that, I don't think chasing the police out of the fucking district is the way to go about doing that. You know, if you you think that you can run a society better than the government or the police... I don't think you should be like fucking enforcing taxing on your fucking like businesses in the area who are you aren't letting do business with anyway and crippling and then know that assuring that these places will remain impoverished because no one with 
any mind at all is going to want to touch these places with a fucking state, a, a citywide pole, yeah, you know? But then you just claim that's because you're being like oppressed. And is like that gentrification? Is this the argument for gentrification? No, no, you're, you're being oppressed because like people don't want to visit these businesses in your fucking autonomous zone because, you know, they have prejudices against you and it's just racist and prejudiced and the uh, that's that's the problem it's not your fault that these businesses are failing it's everyone else's fault of course it is but i think that's why like it's so odd that something like jordan peterson's message for personal responsibility is a massive success you know this fl- if you want to say late so i have another idea about that but because people don't have personal responsibility people are always being spoon-fed we live in, again in a dummy proof foolproof system where you can eat your entire life away with Oreos and Big Macs and you're going to be, you know, uh, told that, you know, you you, you have uh, diabetes and that you should take this medication as opposed to get off your ass eating the correct food and, and, and exercising. No, that touches exactly on what I said earlier where we were all raised that, like, if you feel wronged or oppressed or you're sad, it's okay. You were right. They were wrong. We'll figure it out. Okay. And... It's okay to do whatever you want. No one can tell you otherwise. Live your life how you want to live your life. So yeah, you're going to eat Oreos and Big, Big Macs all the fucking time and drink like two two liters <laughs> of fucking Coke per day. Uh, maybe one uh, two liter of Coke Zero too. Just, <laughs> just know, to balance it out. Balance it out a little bit. You're still thirsty. You don't need that extra. <laughs> you don't need sugar. a cup of water. Yeah. There's enough water so, in Pepsi. Uh, but yeah, you're going to be obese and overweight and have diabetes and like have shit health. And what are we going to say? It's okay. Be body positive. That's it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's who you are, and like, come the fuck on, really. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. But I mean, it's personal responsibility, and no one wants to take that responsibility because it's easier you don't to have say to take that responsibility because society isn't making you. And plus, you can just go online and post on Reddit or Tumblr or fucking Twitter or whatever. Or, on a YouTube video that oh you're oppressing me I'm fat and people like it and you can you can like fucking why why take responsibility for something if everyone's gonna say it's okay you're not doing anything wrong so this I think is a good jumping off topic to since you tr- you 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 study classics what is your opinion and something that has inspired me for a lot for quite a while now is on Stoic philosophy. I think Stoicism is like the greatest philosophy. I really do, but I don't think it's human. Okay, yeah, it it detracts from our 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 inclination to actually embody these elements of. Yeah, like I think, in the same way, and I'm not putting it on the same level as, but in the same way that you have like angsty teenagers who look at communism and say this is perfect and this can <laughs> work. It's the same thing looking at stoicism. But the the fact of the matter is that human beings aren't stoic. We can try really hard to be, and I think that's a great thing to aspire to, but we aren't. And so, like, I guess, personally, even though I'd love to be a stoic, I'm much more of, like, an Epicurean because I find that it incorporates, like, the stoic principles along with not hedonistic ones, but ones that are more... More human. Like inclusive of the human experience, yeah. Because uh, how I viewed it a little bit before I kind of really dabbled into Stoicism, it was more like a, a like a Zen kind of idea, right? Because the whole idea of Zen is you you, you're, you cut, you, like you peel the potato, you peel the potato, right? Mm-hmm. And there's no 
uh, you know, like a negative aspect to it or positive aspect to it, it is what it is, you know. And I think that that's a very healthy thing that stoicism, stoicism provides. But I also really love um, Taoism. And I really think that if you could properly leverage Stoicism, because it's funny how you could read something on emotional stability or willpower, this and that. And then, like you said, by our own devices, by our own, you know, being or fabrications of our being, we will fall into the pitfall of feeling anger or feeling this or like lament. Like I was at an interview a couple of days ago and I had my, my car started. I turned my car, my, my key in my car, closed the door and the, the car locked itself. So when I tried to unlock it with my, my phone, it wasn't unlocking. So oh. fuck was definitely the first word that came to my, uh, to my mm-hmm. mind, you know, but again, there's nothing wrong with feeling that either. Like you said, stoicism is more a, a guideline and a suggestion rather than you absolutely have. And like you said, metacognition, it's only when we start to realize that I'm not being stoic right now. You're, you're, you're engaging your cognition like in the in the aspect of let's say buddhism right uh, and eastern thought who watches the watcher you're watching the watcher right now you're aware of your own cognition so what you're doing now is i shouldn't be this way so you're putting constraints right and my all-time favorite philosopher the most influential philosopher to me is alan watts i love alan watts and He's really he formed a massive amount of my time, particularly my in my mid twenties when I started studying uh, Zen Zen philosophy. He he was uh, he had a lot of provocative, interesting ideas, and he was really a great showman to it. And he has a lot of different talks, but like one of them, you know, or at least a segment of it was, "You're no higher than a potato," right? It's to dissociate yourself from this grand importance and this. What's this idea of this higher self? Yeah, we have values that we can compartmentalize and create images and we want to be, you know, a just and stoic and responsible and calm person. But every like you're also removing the actual reality that every situation is dynamic. Yes, non-aggression principle. You do not want to aggress against uh, upon someone. However, if someone is aggressing upon you, you need to be aggressive. And I do think as an example that the most the, the capacity for the most uh, peace also happens to lie in the best people that can be the most violent because you need to be a, a, a warrior in a garden and not a gardener in a war. You know, it's funny you say that because I saw a meme about that on Facebook today. Okay. And uh, the second image, because that was the first <laughs> one, right? The second one on the bottom... With Samwise Gamgee, and he's saying, "Hold my beer." Oh, that's amazing! Uh, that's <laughs> fucking great, bro. The internet is an amazing place. Ask for something, it will deliver. That's right. Don't ask for it; it's still gonna deliver. <laughs> but um, no, I think you're right, and uh, I don't actually know anything about Taoism or that much in general about Eastern religion or philosophy, but. Um, in general, see, the thing I hate about theology and about philosophy is that I, I feel I haven't felt comfortable trying to create a guideline or framework for morality or uh, ethics or uh, good living practices because it, 
it seems to all be so subjective. Maybe that's just because I'm undisciplined. But uh, it seems more to me that as long as you know what is right and you make an effort to, in my opinion, strive towards something like being stoic, uh, you're doing the right thing. A step in the right direction. Yeah. And I mean, that's subjective. Other people might not agree with that specifically, like the idea that stoicism is something to aspire to. And that as long as you manage the rest of your experiences and emotions in a way that's mature and fulfilling for you, it's good enough. But um, like for theology, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I don't quite get that at all. That's a very large complicated yeah very convoluted convoluted and arbitrary and conflicting like set of moral philosophies and guidelines that's doesn't seem to be well based at all like i can almost understand its need right thousand years ago exactly exactly but at this point we're educated enough and we've built up enough of a catalog of philosophical or legal or ethical or moral discourse uh, across human history uh, that I don't see why it's needed. We're educated enough that we can build our own frameworks. I think, however, so I'm in agreement with you. I think that the desert religions, which is the basis for the majority of the world, obviously there are different places in the world that do not have this origin, Know, but for the West, Western civilization, as well as uh, for the Middle East and uh, uh, and yeah, the you know the Mus- Muslims have spread across the world. You know, so you're talking about just Muslims alone are like what 1.6 billion people. That's a lot of people. yeah, it's a lot of people. And then you have uh, you know Christians, which you know you're, you're still still talking about 30 percent mm-hmm. at at bare minimum, you know, of the human experience, but. I definitely agree with you that a lot of these things have lost their significance over time because they've become redundancies, right? In every aspect of our society or culture, these things have been reinforced. Obviously, there are exceptions, but to the to the fact that your music is free to be whatever music you want to be, you know, your your writing is free to be whatever writing it's going to be, and so obviously there's maybe potentially cultural restraints that obviously exist within every type of uh, culture. However, I think that there does need to be a certain sense of remembering where things come from. And in my opinion, I think that, you know, Graham Hancock? Yes. Right. I think his assessment of we are a people with amnesia is a very fair assessment because we do not know our origins, our true origins, and how that's evolved over time. Yes, I agree. So, first of all, like, as a classics major, so that meant uh, it's essentially the study of classical Greco-Roman civilization, and it encompasses all of the things that that entails. Uh, Aristotelian talking circles here. So, (laughs) you look at uh, Greco-Roman history, you look at Greco-Roman mythology and literature, which... I know where you're going. um, Well... Encompasses law, uh, some religion, theology, uh, poetry, architecture, architecture, and art, art history. Uh, it, it gives you a very language and uh, linguistics. It gives you a really wide base of things to talk uh, to study, 
and to piece together to create a full picture of the civilization that you're studying uh, which uh, at its core at its essence is the foundation for western civilization where we are now right if greece had not existed like ancient classical greece had not existed if the parthenon had not been erected and if they had not fought the persians and if alexander the great had not conquered the known world and created the greatest empire to have existed at that time and if the romans didn't follow them up and, and augustus just, and, and caesar hadn't have lived and all of these things had not occurred if the eastern empire hadn't held off muslim hordes and preserved so much classical knowledge and transmitted it west when it fell we wouldn't be where we are and i think that's something that's very much missing from the modern western person's mindset is a knowledge of where we're coming from and where all these things are because we take them for granted you know it's easy to say <clears throat> we should respect how they torture political prisoners in china because it's a different culture uh and you take for granted the fact that we don't do it here and then look at how things developed here right uh how interactions are between people here and the basis is for our legal systems and what is Western civilization's relationship to slavery? Because a lot of people aren't going to realize that it existed before the American colonial period right. and things like that. And you, it's just like the blind leading the blind as far as the discussions go. politics, now, man. That's politics. It is politics, but it's unfortunate because it informs a lot more than just our political decisions. Right. Because, I mean, progressivism is more than just a political thing. It's a cultural thing. And so where are we going with that? And how can we define what we are as a culture or society versus what are we competing against? Because at the end of the day, it is a competition. And you have certain players in this global competition. So we'll use China as one. China, if we're going to talk about China as a monolithic structure and not s single out any one of the 1.5 billion Chinese <laughs> people, save us a little trouble here, <laughs> is completely, it's 100% diametrically opposed to Western civilization. Right. Authoritarian. It's more authoritarian and it's more collectivist. They absolutely do intend to be the number one global superpower and spread Chinese and and be the number one financial power and military power. In what world is that not opposed to our goals? But that's Unless what our goal is to become a Chinese subject, <laughs> right? And and give up our way of life and our way of living in favor of Chinese way of living, right? You can't even make the argument anymore that, oh, it worked for Hong Kong because guess what? It didn't. <laughs> so you have to accept that our civilization has turned out this way and Chinese civilizations turned out that way. It's not that we can't collaborate or work together, but... Something's got to give. Something's got to give and there's got to be a dominant player is 
my take on that. So, okay, there's a few things here. It's really packed because uh, you talked about first uh, where we come from. Um, Graham Hancock and a lot of, uh, like, uh, I saw uh, Dave, um, Joe Rogan had uh, David Maru, Marusaki. Or, if you see this podcast, it was amazing. And he talked about, like, the, the previous, like, un- pre- previously very minimally known and if not unknown almost entirely aspect of greco uh predominantly greco uh based psychedelic psychedelic rituals that went as far as portugal that's another topic so there's a lot of things that we don't know about uh after that you went on to talk about how things have changed over time and there's a lot of cultural happenings that have happened since greece and now ben shapiro very eloquently puts it as Western civilization can be summed up as uh, Greco uh, as uh, Judeo-Christian values tied in with Aristotelian uh, ethics, right? And that comprises Western civilization. Obviously, with time and development and technology, things have changed. Uh, and where I thought you were going when we were talking about Gre- uh, Greco-Roman is that it's very, and, and obviously, I love Greco-Roman history. But we also don't go into that much the actual Mesopotamian and and Egyptian aspect. Uh, okay, Egyptology is quite large, but in terms of like uh, uh, the the Sumerians and the Mesopotamians, we don't even realize how important this is for the over like for human history. Well, because I think you can kind of separate it a little from the things that are immediately important to understanding Western history. Okay. Um, So as far as Egypt is concerned, uh, it's very important because early, like Hellenistic uh, history, or Hellatic, let's say, history, is uh, very much influenced by Egypt. And... isn't it also uh, influenced from Meso- Mesopotamia, like the, the Phoenicians? Yes, but the Phoenicians weren't... Yes, because of the alphabet and a lot of other things, absolutely. What, what about Heliopolis? Yeah. Heliopolis. Baalbek, the temple of Jupiter, but really the, the, the temple of, of Zeus or uh, Baal. Is that in it's Palestine? It's in present-day present day Lebanon. Okay, I'm not sure about that one. But, like, because that's, uh, it's like uh, going down a, a ladder. Yes. There is no end to the hole, you know? Oh, yes. Uh, so, but you could say that as far as Greek and thus Western traditions begin. So, you can see the Egyptian influence immediately in trade and uh, exchange of craftspeople. And also in the application of the uh, second Egyptian canon, which is Egyptian like... Egyptian canon? Oh, you mean uh, the mythology or mythos? No, the Egyptian canon is, is literally... History. The, no, it's the proportions used in sculpturary and artwork. Oh, okay. Yeah, so how big like is a person, like how big is their torso versus their legs versus the size of their skirt? Versus oh, so like classical ratios. Exactly, okay. yeah. So... Uh, Early Greek sculpturary use that as a uh, basis. As a basis, like um, in the archaic period, the uh, kurai, 
I think they were called. Large Greek uh, statuary with like it's an archaic. I'm pretty sure it's Kuroi because I actually heard it in that Kuroi. podcast with Joe Rogan. And yeah, so you can see that immediately. Also, I think it's pretty obvious that the Greek propensity towards colonnades is Egyptian inspired. And obviously, I mean, there were Greek cities in Egypt uh, during the classical period and uh, archaic periods. So predating Alexander's conquest of Egypt. Really? There, yeah, there w- yeah, there were Greek cities there already. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so there's a huge cultural exchange there. But as far as like Sumer or like the Sumerians are concerned with like the foundations of Greek civilization, it's kind of much more disconnected because in Egypt you had a, you have absolutely a continuity that stretches uh, thousands of years. Whereas in Babylon and Samaria, it's not quite as continuous. Okay. And so from the time of the ancient like Sumerians to the time of the Phoenicians uh, and the exchange of the alphabet with the Greeks, you've got quite a long discontinuation there. And also most of the knowledge transfer happened through Egypt, I would imagine. Okay. Because uh, I... Anatolia. Right, right. Um, I I love... um, Zechariah Sitchin. So, have you read the, the the Earth Chronicles? No. The Twelfth Planet. No. So that's a huge rabbit hole. I don't okay. know if we should get into it because it's it's really complicated. And I really liked where you were going. I wanted to kind of tie in back to culture. Mm-hmm. But that's something I would definitely suggest for reading purposes. Um, however, going back to culture, monolithic culture, China dominant cultures. Terence McKenna has this idea of dominator cultures, right? And now back to tie into Greece. Let's say you have Alexander the Great. He was obviously a conqueror. He was a dominant conqueror, but he allowed for the culture that was already in place to exist. His idea was, which is very interesting. It's a very, I would, I would even dare to suggest, it's a very masculine form of conquest in the sense that he allows what is there to be only to propagate ideas and beliefs and and customs right very much and again when we talk about great men people have this notion that greatness is only a positive attribute but like we just mentioned with stoicism people are imperfect and there will be good aspects of them and bad aspects of them regardless of where who they are Mm -hmm. so here you have let's say uh Alexander the Great, and then you also have, uh, example, Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan was exceptionally brutal, but he also allowed for the culture that was in place to exist without absolutely uh, imposing that the the he imposed law, mm-hmm. yes, but he did not impose that people had to become Mongolian, right? He allowed for people in Afghanistan to keep their customs in of, of Afghani culture, so. Going back to Terence McKenna now, he has this idea of dominator culture, particularly in the West, because he was very much a psychedelic derived man. So he, he didn't like this idea that pe- people can tell you to do what to do with your consciousness. I agree with that. 
However, we're talking about dominator cultures now. There's a difference with the United States being the top dog and if it was Russia or China. And that's, I think, unequivocal because as much as, let's say, we could talk about the CIA and how they've meddled with other people, other cultures, and they've they've toppled regimes and they've put in puppet, uh, puppet governments. And th- there's a, obviously a long list of shadow shadow movement along, um, and for political gain or whatever other gain there was, like you know, resources or control over an area, you know, strategic strategic leverage. You still have to, I think, if you're honest, like allow the idea that it's better that that was the player that was dominant because it wasn't monopoly where it was total care. Like you were, there's no chance. There was still room for play, you know? If you had had a Soviet Russian or communist China dominant player, it looks more, and and, and the people don't realize that like Germany, right? Fascism is, they say a right wing, but it's not a right wing thing. It's actually a left wing thing. It's a social party that that they turn into a white nationalist social party. Yeah, no, I, I like that you made that distinction because a lot of people just automatically ascribe like fascist Germany to like being a conservative right wing based ideology. It's on purpose, but, but yeah, of course it's on purpose because disinformation. But but it is based more out of a, a leftist ideology, and um, <clears throat> as far as dominant cultures, I mean, you have to understand when you're conquering somebody. It takes a lot of resources to assimilate them or resettle them or anything like that. So it's just better to you guys, you, you do whatever you want, but you pay me taxes and we're chill. Yeah, we're good. So generally, that's how that goes. Uh, you only really see like a complete like change in the cultural or linguistic makeup of a place when uh, people is settling there. So you saw that a lot in like. Uh, the later Roman period, where a lot of Slavic tribes or Germanic tribes were coming west and going into the Balkans or what have you. Like Romania. Uh, well, Romania, well, going into Romania, sure, but Romania actually are... Uh, Romanian is a Latin-based yeah, language. Yeah, it is. I didn't know that, but what I was trying to say is that here you have Romans went and created their own... Right, but it's more like the thing with Rome and even Greece, but less Greece, but Greece too, is that they were around for so long. How do you not adapt to it? Right. You know, like now I, I it's hard for us to imagine, but like uh, in Anatolia, there was a kingdom called Caria. And for all intents and purposes, by the time the kingdom of Caria fell and just got assimilated in anonymously into the Roman Empire. Probably there were no more people speaking Carrion or writing it. They were speaking and reading and writing in Greek right. because the Greeks were the dominant trading partner, dominant tourists, dominant military. It was the power. language of the intellectual. Right. And the same thing in Rome uh, or with the Roman Empire. 
So a lot of languages got eliminated, not because you can't learn them or you can't speak them. They just, just died out. After 600 years of Roman rule, what the fuck are you going <laughs> to do, right? right? Everyone speaks Latin. Now, they don't speak proper Latin. And that's why you had dialects of Latin throughout the Roman Empire. And it's the same idea as Romania, where, yeah, I'm sure thousands of those people that eventually like encompassed whatever would be the Wallachian and eventually Romanian people were Roman citizens. Eventually, I think everyone was Roman citizen. Don't quote me on that. It's no, but I think a long I, time I haven't studied this shit. I, I don't know if it was but at the outset or at the end, but because it used to be a place where the the wealthy Romans went, right? And it was like their their countryside. You no, know? it was well. Rome had a lot of places like that, right? Right. And right. I don't know about that specifically, but and my point being that, yeah, uh, Bulgaria is a good example. <clears throat> so, Bulgaria was initially taken over by and it would have probably been thracian speaking peoples right uh taken over by the bulgars and the bulgars were a mongolic tribe and they got displaced by the bulgarians who came later who were slavic speaking tribe yeah I didn't know that. Yeah. So technically, Bulgaria is named after the Bulgars, who are not even Slavic, (laughs) like Mongolia. Um, And when the Bulgars came, they let everybody speak... Sorry, they let everybody speak Thracian and Greek. When the Bulgarians came, they slowly started to change things, but slowly. And it was easier for them because they also settled there. The same principle as in Hungary where the Hungarians came and settled the Carpathian Basin, uh, it still took generations and hundreds of years for Hungarian to become the lingua franca of the the country because they let all the peasants and all the farmers there continue to live there and grow food for them because they weren't uh, set in like they were horse conquerors. They're nomads from the steep. They had no agricultural tradition. So it was more efficient for them to leave the farmers be and pay them taxes and grow their crops. Um, I guess a similar example would be like uh, Normandy. <coughs> Normandy. Uh, well, like the Norman invasion of England? Uh, well, um, yes, there was that, right? Which is, uh, I saw a little history on it, but wait. Uh, the, 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 the Scandinavians that... Uh, took hold in France, mm. right? It was it not Norman, Normandy? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I think it was Normans, and then they, they intermingled with the French, and then the Normans took over. That's why uh, English the English have mutton as an yeah. English word, but it's actually mouton from French. Yeah, well, that's because, yeah, the Normans went and conquered the British. Hastings, right, the... Yeah, the Battle of Hastings. Exactly, yeah. And, I mean, mostly their influence was on the aristocracy, but those words filtered down. But that's generally how it goes, yeah. So, going to the dominator culture once more, um, there are certain dominator cultures which are more conducive to, if you want to say, peace or survivability. And... When you have monolithic structures, as you mentioned, that are totalitarian 
and seek to create to, to replicate obviously more every culture right i mean biological programming itself is to replicate to impart part of yourself into the world and for it to remain that's what the whole idea of a legacy is culturally yes now it's been accepted but your legacy in a physical format is well yes but at this stage and you could say we reached this stage thousands of years ago. It's not so much about like imparting a legacy or even propagating your culture. It's really a greedy, selfish desire at this point of why empires have to exist or get bigger and etc. Th that's all it comes down to is that people take on the personification of the state right. and they have to see it succeed. I think is where it comes down to. But as an example, you have America, which is a republic, and you have Texas, which is a republic, right? So, um, and obviously you have the Roman Republic. So, is it not beneficial? Yes, it's definitely beneficial in an immediate sense, but is it not also uh, beneficial in terms of survivability, not just for greed, but to have survival aspects of a republic right of a self-regulating mechanism through them through democratic means right uh, in which you can sustain uh, logistically your mode of ex your mode of existence and and your pro pro um uh your um pro not propriety but your your propagation to the future your 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 what's the term i'm looking for anyways your pro Proper genesis. I don't know what I'm looking for, but uh, your your ability to remain into the future. But I don't know. Like maybe I'm misunderstanding, but I don't know what that has to do with specifically being a republic. Like any state can can take those measures to, to continue itself into right. the future. And uh, it uh, what I'm saying about greed and ego and selfishness is not so much a. Um, having mechanisms in place for the states to continue. Okay. But for the states to become dominant over others. Because ah, when you okay. think about it, <clears throat> there is no... Yeah, you need superpowers that are going to keep things moving to keep dynamic of trade and everything in flux so that we don't have stagnation. But when you think about it, there is no reason necessarily why we need to have that sort of process of every state trying to get one up on its neighbors or whatever, which is very much a destructive uh, cycle that every region in the world has fallen into, including Europe. Right. And I, I think you're, yeah, go ahead. Europe's now out of that cycle. And like globally, we're much more on like a, a superpower scale of things. Now, I personally, I like fantasizing about a world where economies are much more regionally based and power is situated much more regionally. And the whole foreign policy, like, board globally has changed. Because... The idea that it has to come down to a showdown between the United States or China seems a little absurd to me if 
everybody just forms economic and military blocks and decides no. But I mean, the problem with that is that, of course, if you're big enough to take down one, you're probably big enough to take down all. Yeah. See, I think that's that's the thing that um, we as a people, and this is where I was kind of alluding to a little bit earlier, I have this idea that as humans, like you said, we've out, like we should have outgrown this. But I really think that in the scope of human evolution, currently, we are like the terrible twos part of, of, of our, if you want to say, conscious evolution, where we have the ability to talk a little bit and play and do all these things. We're starting, like, and I wanted to get into this as well, this whole, like, scientific dominance, right? Uh, this, this material reductionist uh, mentality of the world. Um, we, our technology is outpacing our, our consciousness on a global, uh, on, on, on a, a global slash individual level because now we're hyper-focused on ourselves and we're obviously hyper-focused about all these issues around the world, but we're not also basically uh, conscious that, like you said, if you reduce people's power over people, right, if you had, let's say, um, more uh, individual responsibility to take place, and if you had, example, a watch, let's say in, in a neighborhood, you have a watch and everyone is to contribute to this watch, it's in everyone's favor for everyone else. There's a self-regulating mechanism against you know, someone not doing their job correctly or abusing power. I'd like to interject for a moment that yeah. that's a lot because... Okay, I have to disagree that we're in our terrible twos. Okay. I, I think that human civilization has matured as much as it's going to mature. And at this point, it's we're just recycling things. And like I said, metacognition was a mistake. So right now we're thinking about how we think, about how we thought, about how we thought, about how okay, we're thinking. Okay, I see what you're saying. You understand? And those yeah. are the changes that we're witnessing in society and civilization at the moment. Because you, you, I'm sorry, you can't look at the height of the Roman Empire and say that they were significantly less advanced less advanced as a society than we are today. Technologically, of course, they are less advanced. But you're saying the structure of society. But the structure, exactly. Okay, and like even, even the moral and ethical fabric of society at the time, I, I don't think you could say that we've made s huge leaps and bounds of progress ahead of them. Uh, I think that metacognition it was a mistake and we're just caught up on it. And human society takes a pretty cyclical approach to things. So there's a rise and a fall. And like you reach a certain amount of decadence in a society and it's it's got to be followed up by a fall. And this is always true. And we're at that point of decadence now where as humans or as specific cultures specific cultures right now we haven't reached that space as a as a global as a collective race yet okay right as a species yet but uh in specific cultures we've re definitely reached that point of decadence because we have now the luxury to ponder not survival means not our survival and not even where we should be going as a civilization, but we have the time to ponder our thoughts, 
about our, our thoughts about our thoughts no but yeah sorry but, i mean to interject go ahead <laughs> no but about how we could improve life for everyone but ourselves and what all of our mistakes were and how we can go back and correct all of those mistakes you understand it's like we've decided to take a pause on progress and just do a 180 on everything we didn't like and that's not progress because it doesn't bring us anywhere it's just like a reset and i don't know why we need that reset but that's what we've decided we need and to me that's the ultimate decadence it's addictive you know why because it's like uh it's this whole and i could maybe associate it to like training and the diet it's you're, oh, I'm going to start my diet on Monday. I'm going to start my training program on Monday. You're always putting it off. It's this, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna reset, right? But then something else happens, obviously, because it's life. Then I'm going to reset again, and I'm going to reset again. Okay, but next month, okay, but next year, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're always pushing that, you're, you're, you're pushing the, the, the pole, you're, you're moving the, the goalposts mm-hmm. so that you could, that goal that you, that is so important to you, mm-hmm. it's still not the right time. Yeah, Exactly. But what we should be doing is looking for ways to advance and move forward as a civilization and not ways to just say this was a mistake so let's take the time to fix this and that's the reason that's not working so let's change that and whatever. You should Things should be rolling forwards, not be at a standstill and we all point fingers at each but other. That's, and say that's bureaucracy, right? Because it, it has so much to do with keeping the things that are continuously in place democratized bureaucracy as it regards to social change that's depressing to think about really sad um the reason why i also brought up that we're in our terrible twos is because from let's say zechariah sitchin's work um i really i really appreciate a lot of what he's written about which is essentially the ancient alien hypothesis. hypothesis. So I, I think you're a little bit familiar with that, right? Do you know a little bit about it? I know a little bit about ancient aliens. Okay. So I'm not obviously super well versed and there's obviously a lot of information to go through. But the whole idea, you know, that there was another race of, you want to call it people, but of life that came here uh, propagated culturally, you know, that, so there's actual physical means for why they were here. And then eventually as it elaborates in the in, in, in the literature is that it eventually they propagated and helped co-create man aside from the, w- with the living creatures that already existed here and that they basically and this is why i, I really love to learn about sumeria i mean all culture of course because it all comes from somewhere you want to know where but sumeria and mesopotamia because even egypt africa and even other places around the world like mesoamerica uh, these were places that were um, hubs for the ancient aliens to carry out their means. And and I, I really find it interesting that we can look back, at least certain people can, can look back at these in the, at, at, at in, or the individuals that came before us, right, uh, that had mythology. And we analyze their mythology as being fairy tales, Right, like you're, you're talking about people that actually had to le- know how to survive. You don't know how to survive. You can't live in the wild. You can't fucking go make fire. You can't do a lot of basic human tasks essential for survival. We're talking about these people who are very rugged and robust, and obviously very flawed as well. But you have these people, right, who have this myth- mythological uh, um, 
background and its fairy tales as opposed to that there could be potentially certain aspects and and there's so much that could act, we're learning more now through technology and science our understanding of science and the and the actual world of the possibilities that exist so you talk you're telling me that like someone who witnessed someone fly in the sky wouldn't think that they were a god mm-hmm. or if they had the potential to to have a firearm that launched some kind of projectile whether it was energy based or some kind of like lead projectile you know you're telling me that that wouldn't appear to you godlike when the only thing you had was a fucking stick you know i as far as mythology goes i think it's really more a matter of i mean like mythology is it's really hard because we have no it's a lot harder than tracking uh, what kind of dwellings did people like to live in and what's the progression of like the art style of like depictions of Athena or whatever. It's a lot harder to track than that. And even those things are difficult because we have no record for it. So you have thousands and thousands of years of oral tradition and you have like, mergings of different cultures with different oral traditions which may in some cases have the same basis but you know important differences and how do they come together to create a new oral tradition and how's that finally brought into history through like the written word in like for example the Iliad or whatever right and so that's really hard for me because like uh, for example I read a great explanation on uh, the Achilles in the Iliad, whereas Achilles is probably the uh, syncretism of a hero and a river deity. I never heard this before. Yeah, and basically that they like an ancient river deity that was probably defunct now because of the combination of two cultures, but it carried on in the story of the Iliad. And that's why he was able to fight a river and he's he's so godly. It's because that he is a hero, but he started off as a divinity in the earliest roots of the story or at some point in the story before it got to the point where we know it now as the Iliad. Right. And... When you take into consideration how much time went by and how many different interactions went by between different cultures and different tribes and whatever, uh, mythology is just like the biggest headache. Like, I'd rather try to understand X-Men comics than like (laughs) any sort of mythology. And I enjoy mythology a lot and trying to make sense of it. But to get to the roots of all of that, it's crazy for sure like i mean obviously there's only so many interactions is i think the right way to put it between when it first was created and what it originally meant to like the oral tradition and then to when it was written down and then also all the individual pieces that were put in place around these things um i just find it fascinating and and that's why you have to go back to the earliest records to see what is written you know that's why it's interesting ancient Egypt. That's why it's inter- interesting in... But the unfortunate thing is that ancient peoples didn't write down the things we wanted them to write down, you know? Yeah, the bartering. Like, <laughs> in, in ancient Egypt, 
they they didn't keep necessarily historical records. It was more like records of victories. And, of course, mercantile records, legal records, uh, things like that, inventory and whatever. And in uh, even Bronze Age Greece, too. It's once you... Like, uh, Herodotus was the first historian. And, and that's really true because up until then, you didn't have people who just wrote about history for the sake of writing about history. You wrote about history because your pharaoh or your king or whoever had this great victory and we have to record that victory. So you're not recording history, you're recording an event within history. And so the way that we view what happened and looking at original texts and things is it really short in scope. Because we have historical records of certain things dating back to thousands of years ago in Egypt. But in general, like history as we, like I'm just going to record the entirety of this war called the Peloponnesian War because I want to. Thank you, Thucydides. <laughs> like that's, that's really a novel invention in human history when right. you think about it. And even writing down uh literature like like creative literature yes we have recordings like texts from egyptian religious texts that record myths and in babylon too and things like that but um where do you draw the delineation between here is the myth of this god and here is a fucking epic poem that's 20 whatever books long and like over however many thousands of lines and so yeah and uh, what kind of things are being transmitted because like how many different interpretations of like the oedipus story are there right and so but so one example i can give right about the delineation is that um have you you know what the enuma elish is yeah right so it's like the Mesopotamian uh, creation story, yeah, right? Yeah. And it also, it's very important to note, note changed over time, yeah. right? So the la- the latest version of the Enuma Elish was what we currently know as the Enuma Elish. But it's very interesting because it essentially is the creation of our solar system, mm-hmm. which is when you look at, let's say, when you c- draw the comparisons, like how did they know that, you know, there was a Pluto, and 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 so obviously these are not the terms for them, right? They had uh, whatever Marduk and and Anu and uh, and Lil and all these different figures, Enki. Well, I mean, ancient astro- uh, astronomy is like crazy because, like, you have temples in Greece, for example, that like exactly twice a year the moon is going to line up with this door on the side of the temple to illuminate this thing and in egypt you have similar things and this is ridiculous like how they figured this out and like how who the fuck took the time to figure out this is exactly the space on the mountain we need that shit exactly that height or the moonlight won't shine in properly and it's ridiculous like the dimensions needed to build these temples or these pyramids or whatever it's mind-boggling and Obviously, we can create great things now, but you have to consider all the amazing tools we have and stuff to do it. Imagine doing that shit back then with none of that. That's well, incredible. Gobleki Tempe, and you have like the pyramids, and you have mm-hmm. all these different like megalithic structures mm-hmm. that have laser-like precision. I mean, 
inside well, the actual forget uh, even laser like pre- precision like do you know about the optical illusions that the greeks made use of in their temples no okay so uh greek colonnades like they're usually going to be fatter in the middle than at the top or the bottom but that is because when you're looking at something sorry when yeah. you look <laughs> when <laughs> you're leaning back that's why i talk that <laughs> when you're looking at something that is from a distance like a long column uh, from a very far distance the middle is going to look thinner than the ends so they constructed them to be fatter in the middle so that when you looked at it from a distance it would look straight the whole way that's crazy the same the same principle was applied to the base of the temples uh where you have the steps that go up and you have the the base of the whole thing the floor it's raised in the middles of each corner the floor has like a hump because if you're looking at something from a distance it's going to look depressed in the middle if it's perfectly straight but if you build it with the curve from a distance it's going to look perfectly straight how do they know this shit right how do they know this shit who took the time to figure all this shit out it's absolutely incredible don't tell me that the pyramid of giza that has in its ratio in its ratio i don't remember what the, what the ratio is but this the 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 speed of light you know come on it, and it's lined up you know to like a exact amount a 1/16th of a degree but these are things that to me just demonstrate that so much time has passed between now and then excuse me no problem but we we have no way of knowing what they could do or knew or were capable of but we do have the results we can see the results so but i think that's why to me and obviously there's been many atrocities committed throughout mankind but one of our greatest impacts and tragedies in the world is the burning of the library of alexandria i think yeah you're right and it, absolutely yeah you're right it's one of the greatest losses and any loss of a vast number of texts like that is incredible and it it's equally terrible that in the late roman period and medieval period we weren't able to have that kind of continuity that western society was used to because we lost a lot of progress then and you have to understand that i think the evidence is like monumental that as far as a society human beings have pretty much progressed as far as we can maybe not as far as we can but on a we're social mature, level we're mature on a social level and we have been for a long time and what's taken us the most time is technological imp- advancements and improvements to get us to a point where we can do the incredible things we do now and we have obviously the evidence that with what tools and knowledge was available to them at the time ancient peoples did incredible things just like we do now and it's that loss of information like at alexandria and at other libraries throughout the world and great collections of texts like that uh yeah that loss was devastating for us and it's true that the the essentially the collapse of the western roman empire did cost us like a thousand years of progress because who knows where we would have been had that not happened 
so is that purely a outgrowth of the growth of Christianity? Like what 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 I mean, you no. obviously the incurring Muslim uh, no, uh, no. Well, the Muslim thing came after, and that was really that was really more of a, a problem for the Eastern Ro- Roman Empire. No, yeah, Byzantium. Yeah, Byzantium. Yeah. Well, that's an anachronism, but yeah. Oh, it's a it's an anachronism. It's an anachronism. Yeah, like because they didn't call themselves the Byzantine Empire. Okay, what did they call themselves? The Roman Empire. Oh, okay. They were the Roman Empire. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the Byzantine Empire was ascribed to them by a Renaissance writer later who was writing about them. Um, so, yeah, the Roman Empire fell for a variety of reasons, but the biggest being that it just had to, you know? It was too big. It was too big. And the problems Log- were logistics? too big. It wasn't even a matter of logistics necessarily. It's just that it hadn't been properly taken care of. I mean, you have different emperors who have different qualities about them. And a whole bunch of factors that are outside of your control. I mean, it's a vast, vast territory that's subject to food shortages and changes in weather for from season uh, from year to year and crop yields. The fact that it lasted so long is incredible. It is. Uh, so it fell for a variety of reasons, and I wouldn't say Christianity was one of them. Because, I mean, if you look in the eastern side of things, the eastern empire became extremely religious. In fact, it had a number of very costly civil wars based around religion, and it was still relatively successful. I mean, it finally collapsed in 1453, so it did all right for itself. So, yeah. Incredible. Uh, So, I think that was a pretty heavy... Heavy set. <laughs> yeah. I think we've got us some things to cover next time. But oh, yeah, for sure. But, I mean, that's why I, I, I definitely knew this was going to be an awesome trip. Uh, and I didn't even know that you were a classics major. Yeah, yeah. That's what I got into because there was no minimum requirement. To well, to be honest, if I, if I was to do anything, I would do that or maybe anthropology. But I think anthropology is a bust. I uh, think sorry, not anthropology, ar- archaeology, sorry. Archaeology is cool, but I mean... No jobs. No jobs, unless you want to be an archaeologist, I guess. There's not lots of money in that. Classics is really fun because it's it teaches you a lot of things. Like, you have to learn how to analyze literature, mythology. So you've got a lot of concepts to deal with on top of the the things associated with history, which is understanding how certain influ- uh, factors influence other things and uh, events that might transpire. And you've got to be able to create a complete picture of everything using what you learned from whatever lesson about art or architecture and whatever you learned about uh religious practices like associated with the god athena or whatever this is not a good example i'm just throwing no of course course. it doesn't matter no it's been years and years since i've been to school dude don't don't apologize but it's really good for you to to get a good comprehension of a lot of different things and while none of them are super applicable to -to day-to-day life you're going to be able to appreciate things that you see more and see, yeah, 
they did the same thing 2,000 years ago, or that was invented 3,000 years ago, or, wow, the problems we have today in Canadian <laughs> politics sound a lot like the problems the Roman Senate had 2,000 years ago, and things like that. And on top of that, uh, even though none of the information, like, I'm sorry, the history of Alexander the Great's conquests of the Persian Empire uh, are not going to come in handy at any job you'll ever have. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but the ability to read through them and understand what helped his successes or how those successes were influenced by experiences he or his father had had or what happened after Alexander's death that showed that his generals were not employing the same tactics and military compositions as his own and what the results were, etc., is a skill that is applicable to a lot of other things because at the end of the day, a lot of jobs today are really like data analysis. And that's all it comes down to. And I think classics does prepare you very well for that because you take in a lot of different forms of information and have to come up with an answer or whatever sort of coherent uh, result from all of that. Honestly, that's that's a very good way to put it. And it's not. What do you mean it's not? <laughs> it's, it's not. Why not? It'll do. Why, why not? You know, like, essentially, what I was thinking about was, you know, it's nice to see the ghosts of, of who came before you, you know, and not in a way that it haunts you, right? Which has kind of been a little bit of a theme of what we're talking about. But you can appreciate, and if it wasn't for the person that came before you and the person that came before them, and then thousands of people between uh, before that person. Well, exactly. And I think it's humbling to understand that there have been moments in history where, where what we're doing now and the life we're living now would not have been possible if not for that man 500 years ago or 50 years ago or 3000 years ago and it's there are moments in history that i think learning about them humbles you you know what i mean like when you read about how the spartans stood at thermopylae yeah okay they didn't save the day but that was an awe-inspiring Gesture. Show of yeah, courage and solidarity yeah. with Greeks, right? Laying and, down their life, and that that humbles you to understand that people did things like that. You know, Hannibal may have lost against Rome. He still took fucking elephants on oh, rafts he, he <laughs> and took, mountains. Oh, exactly. What the fuck, man? <laughs> Marched elephants over the Alpine mountains. I'm that guy sorry. has balls. Yeah, and when you realize that people did these things, it shows you that, like, really, anything is possible. And that, yes, it only takes one man to change history. And that's something that I think today is really lost. I don't know why we feel so detracted from history or from the greatness of individuals, but it, it actually absolutely is a phenomenon that does exist, you know? Like... How much different would the world have been if Caesar hadn't decided, fuck it, we're crossing, crossing the Rubicon. Rubicon. I, I, I use know? that quote all the time. The like, die has been cast. It, it just takes one person to make a decision that influences history. Uh, granted, 
that's one person out of billions of people. You're probably not that person. I'm probably not that person. We probably won't meet that person. But I think it helps give perspective on things. But I think you're very right uh, that it's the metacognition that does that. Because like you said, I, I just had that visual of, of Caesar being there, you know, and he wasn't thinking about, oh, well, what would the Stoics think, you know? No. He was like, fuck it. You know, full send that shit. And he full sent that shit across the river. And well, it worked out for a little bit for him, you know. But I mean, for him, it worked out for a little bit. But for the world, for the world, how did it work out? Like, I'm sorry. Caesar's probably one of the 10 most influential people to ever live. I mean, the. Who was your top 10? Who would you, if you had a top 10? Top 10 most influential people to have ever lived? Yeah. I don't think I could give you a top 10. Okay. So, no, no I'm not saying in, a, in an order. Don't make it in the order. But if, if you had to, like, suggest right off the top of your head right now, some, three, four, five, whatever. You don't have to, like, make an exhaustive list. Um, okay, so Alexander makes the list. And Caesar makes the list. I don't think it's possible not to include them. Um, Genghis Khan. Maybe the guy has like a quarter of the world has his fucking genes. <laughs> that yeah, that, that <laughs> it's a pretty good point, huh? <laughs> it's a pretty good point. <laughs> What's but, really interesting, sorry, uh, yeah. is that e- even in present day India, you have different people who have like I don't know, like a fraction of a percent of Greek. DNA. Well, yeah, they from Indo- two thousand and three hundred years ago, the Indo-Greek kingdom was a thing. It lasted a couple of hundred years. It oh, I didn't a know that. Successful thing. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, there was the Indo-Greco-Bactrian uh, and the Greco-Indian kingdoms. Um, yeah, uh, in India, well, Afghanistan and India, uh, respectively, I guess, and uh, they did all right. They fell eventually, obviously, but like. The Indo-Greek kingdom, and actually, fun fact, um, Zen Buddhism is actually... Stoic, don't tell me it's derived from Stoic philosophy. No, it's, well, it's actually heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. What? And theology, yes. And the art style of Buddhist art uh, and statuary is directly derived from Greek, like, Hellenistic art. That is a fucking crispy nugget right there. That's yeah. crazy. The very first statues of Buddha were actually statues of Apollo. What? Yeah. I did not know this. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Because uh, Greece and India had a lot of contact with each other, especially after Alexander had made it there. And they had established Greek outposts and cities in India. So what, there was communication between mainland Greece and India? Well, of course. I mean, Alexander conquered part of India and he set up cities and outposts in India. And after he died, Seleucus ended up getting that part of the empire. And um, I mean, the Seleucid Empire was a clusterfuck. But like I said, the Bactrian kingdom persisted in Afghanistan and the Indo-Greek kingdom persisted in Greece for a couple of hundred years. And there was still that exchange of ideas and culture. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know. And even before, even before Alexander made it to India, there were Greek philosophers who had traveled there and back 
and Indian philosophers, I think, who had done the same. What? Yeah. See, um, these are the things that I think get Zeno, lost. Xenophon? No, uh, no, Zeno. He was a philosopher. Uh, he w- was he also yeah. a Stoic? Zeno. I I feel like Zeno. W- yeah. Was he was he was he attributed? Was he at the same time as the uh, Roman Empire? No, I don't think so. I think this was an earlier one. Okay. But anyways, uh, there was Greek. There were Greek philosophers who went to India, and yeah, uh, I think one, uh, several went with Alexander on his way there. Uh, yeah. So Indian philosophers? No, Greek philosophers. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. But I th- there were Indians who accompanied Alexander on his travels as well back. I think. Um, I don't quote me on that. But I think so. But how amazing is it? Like you have like Alexander, and wasn't he a direct student of uh, Aristotle? Aristotle, which probably, when you think about it, explains a lot about his approach to things. And and think of it this way, right? Talk about influential men. Like they're also a, a matter of who is before them. And and my next example was going to be Marcus Aurelius. You have two of the most amazing men that have existed. Right, most influential men that have existed, and you had uh, um, Alexander the Great, who had Aristotle as his teacher, and then you had Marcus Aurelius, uh, who had uh, Seneca. Right? Was it not Seneca who was his teacher? So you're talking about these great men who, by happenstance, happen to be alive at the same time as someone who is able to channel into them certain ideas and 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 philosophies that allowed them to be exceptionally great men. Yeah. They would have always been great, but maybe they would have been ruthless and great, but instead they were great in all forms. Yeah, and I think that's something that people should be aware of, you know, because it is sometimes about the right influence at the right time too. And maybe that would inform people's decisions about whether or not we should be enacting radical, strange, fucking leftist social justice <laughs> changes at every fucking given moment of every day. But we didn't even go over to like the, the corporatocracy of morality. You know, you have these, these sweatshop, like you have Nike who's has sweatshops, you know, basically working people to death. But hey, it's all about equality. It says so on our sneaker and on the, on the floor that we painted on this, this, fucking ridiculous but that's because i mean the corporatocracy of morality thing is it I, for me it's like a non-starter because like there's nobody to hold corporations accountable you have the government to hold us accountable for being moral like you know the, we 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 can't decide fuck it we're going to gather up a whole bunch of fucking like people and turn them into slaves in my garage to make <laughs> t-shirts for me. Like I can't, I'm going to go to jail for that. That's a free world, man. What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> but You're no. a white male. It's, it's your, in your but, rights, bro. But, it's part of your white privilege. <laughs> if only life worked like that, <laughs> we'd all be so much better. Yeah. Off. But no, but Nike can go to Vietnam and get a fucking sweatshop full of people who live there seven days a week and they get paid like three and a half cents a fucking hour or whatever. And like, it's kosher, it's fine. And all Nike has to do is we're trying to pay uh, female athletes more and we're trying to improve the conditions in our sweatshops. So now they sleep on beds and not cots. And they don't hang themselves every day. It's every second day. That's Apple. Isn't that Apple? Yeah, they jumped out of buildings. Oh, yeah. So, But they care about our privacy rights. I'm sure they do. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, 
that's like a non-starter for me because you you have no one to hold them accountable to and consumers can't hold corporations accountable so corporations are scared they pretend to be scared so oh you guys made this petition online we're gonna do this we listen to your petition yeah but we don't give a fuck because you were gonna watch the movie anyways assholes yeah like this this will give us a lot of good pr you're gonna buy more t-shirts this time around so <laughs> we're gonna listen to you well uh, there's a there's a quote that uh, corporations have neither bodies to be punished or souls to con- to condemn yeah i don't know that quote but it's a good quote because they don't, uh, they they're just soulless, lifeless entities. That's soul protected purpose. by law, protected by law. Whose sole purpose is to just make money, and that's not. I don't think that's something we should be aspiring to to have exist in society. So I I really think that that's interesting because uh, I wouldn't consider myself a communism uh, co- communist. I'm, I don't think I'm the whole body of communism. That'd be really horrible <laughs> but i don't think i don't consider myself to be communist at all um however i do think that uh as amazing as capitalism is in allowing let's say for free market and individuals to, to determine things i do think that there's obviously limitations and there are obviously existing problems within a a, a, mar- a, a market derived uh system in which uh, there's no uh um self-regulation it's built upon the whole uh it's predicated upon infinite growth. Yes. I don't have an answer for right. what would be better than what we have now. Right. But there's got to be something better than what we have now. Yeah. Because the whole exists for the sake of profit and to continuously grow and continuously make profit. It's nice, but at what cost? And the thing is, we I don't think we want to pay that cost whether that be in terms of the human cost or the environmental cost or whatever cost that has on society. And I think that, I mean, there could be a whole bunch of solutions to it, but it's a difficult thing to tackle, especially right now. Why is it especially right now? Well, because when you think about it historically, I mean... Uh, in ancient times, you had very rich individuals, people who had so much fucking money, we can't fathom how much money they had. And they'd build a temple here, or they'd build a wall there, or they'd build a fleet. And, you know, that's how they'd spend their money to gain favor with the people. And because they had so much fucking much of it, why not have a fucking wall with our name <laughs> on it? Okay. And even now, I mean, like, and this pisses me off all the time, like the Bullfrank train station. That's not the original name of it. It was originally constructed with the money from an English family. And their name's... Amherst? Is it Amherst? I think so. I don't know. Because there's an Amherst street that got taken out. I'm not familiar. I don't know. But the Bullfrank train station, I forget what name, but it was an English family who paid for the fucking train station. Their name's been removed. It's Bullfrank train station now. And this is a continuing like thing, at least in Quebec. But the point being... 100 years ago or 200 years ago, wealthy individuals or families would pay for things like this. They got something out of it, whether it was recognition or legacy, right. whatever it was, they got something out of it. Right, and it still occurs, but I, my understanding and my impression anyways is that it occurs a lot less now. On top of that, you had corporations who before, yeah, we want to have a fucking railroad, we're going to build a fucking railroad. Government's going to pay us for it, we're going to, fucking kill a lot of indians whatever it's going to take though we're going to get results we're going to build a railroad but now rogers is like ah 
we can't like increase cell coverage because it'll cost too much. So we've got to charge the most fucking ridiculous and there's no fucking for a cell plan. Western world. Because profits, yo. Because <laughs> uh, at least Rogers is rolling in it, and that's all that counts. They they can't they can't they can't like cut their war chest uh, at all. Take no hit to the war chest to expand wireless coverage, but we can charge consumers more. But even like you mentioned with uh, the example, the environmental aspect, right? You have these companies who spill massive amounts of oil, and they get like a two billion dollar fine. Guess what? That's like a week. Yeah, it's nothing. And so if it's a week, there's got to be a better solution for all of these things than what we have now. Well, you know what? We don't. The, the even worse part about that is, is that you have these complete juvenile and like intellectually uh, undeveloped people think that someone who, someone like uh, Bill Gates, who uh, is viewed as a philanthropist, meanwhile he's taking all the money that he has. And he's putting it into his own private uh, charitable organization. So he's just putting it from one pocket to the other. And then you want taxes on these people. They're going to just, they have, they have all the resources to beat you at the Monopoly game. You're never going to beat them in Monopoly. Mm-hmm. But guess what? If you have money to spend, you know, if you're not, like you said, I didn't even know the figure that, that the, Canadian, the average Canadian household is at 160% of debt to, to income ratio. A little bit more than that. I don't remember oh, the exact e- number. It's even like better. 162.8 or something like that. It's ridiculous. Though. Yeah, like like you're never going to get a house and pay it off anywhere near as fast as your parents are. But you know where the biggest problem comes with modern debt? I mean, modern wealth. Tax? No. Oh. Wealth, sorry. Wealth and wealthy individuals and even corporate wealth. It's because it's not cash. It's all imaginary funds. De facto. So whereas before you were rich because you owned all this fucking land or you owned these this fleet of ships or you owned this company with these railroads or you, you owned something, you had gold or you had cash, you had something. Now it's all information it's all digital it's yeah. all it's all stocks well, and it's nothing and so what can they even do with that and so i mean uh, if we wanted to improve something i'd start with that it's the underlying nature of the financial system as it stands is that wealth no longer actually exists it's just imagined speculative speculative but isn't any currency like cuz example like it used to be that the american dollar was based on its weight like it had it had a, a trading value of its weight in gold or uh, sorry it's every dollar was was redeemable for uh, the us got rid of the gold standard a long long time well, the federal reserve right which is all about a matter of like the central banking system yeah but it's not a, tied to gold the gold standard was removed a very long time ago it, yeah exactly that's what i'm trying to say it was removed a long time ago because people were like wait you're telling me that i could like you, first of all how preposterous is it that you have a central bank to a country that is a private organization yeah, I don't understand how that works either. And and no one is talking about this. Every, people people are going to like to economics, right? They're, they're going to like example James B. They're going to schools for financial education. And where is there a, an absolute revolt that you tell me there's a private company selling money to countries mm-hmm. <laughs> at interest? Yeah. So they're making profit on all the dollars that exist in circulation. That doesn't sound sketchy. <laughs> 
there, like I said, there are a lot of things wrong with it, but definitely the one, because yes, the value of all currency and everything is speculative, but the idea that it's speculative to the point where you don't own anything, it, it, that sketch, right? Like your net worth can fluctuate billions of dollars in a day and you don't own anything. It's not even being traded necessarily. You didn't trade it away. It's just your, your company is worth less. The stocks are worth less. It's, I understand why we have it and that it's necessary, but it's not a sound system. Like the stock market rallied over 30,000 the other day. We're in the middle of a global pandemic where half of the fucking United States is on lockdown. Most of Europe and all of, well, Canada's on lockdown. All of Europe's on fucking lockdown. Like half of Asia's on lockdown. Everyone's fucking bankrupt and going broke and shit. But the stock market rallied past 30,000. It's at a new fucking record. Does that sound healthy? Well, like look at 2008. Right. Well, we never recovered from two thousand and eight. But two thousand eight was the greatest con job, that was right before our very eyes. And this is what the fuck the the, the, the scariest part of all this, whether it's political, economic, whatever it is, you have all these really bad actors that are so bad at acting, that it's done in plain sight. Well, no. See, at least in the U.S., it was done in plain sight. In Canada, all our bailouts were done in private. Yes, fair point. Fair point. I I, I didn't even I can't even tell you. What was bailed? Well, Bombardier is the only one because it always gets bailed out. So Hydro, Canadian, maybe? Uh, GM's bailout was public because it was done in concert with the US. But like Canadian banks were all bailed out, just like US banks. It just wasn't announced at the time. All of the Canadian banks got fucked just like the US banks. There was no, our system is so much more secure and strong and we have more sale fa- fail safes. Harper bailed them all out. He just didn't say anything to anybody publicly. So, but, and after that, I mean, uh, in the U.S., the U.S. market had a housing price correction and it had a debt to income correction and it had all of those, and they, they, they weren't right. It never recovered. But Canada never had any corrections. Canada is really like a fairy tale. It's a figment of our imagination. <laughs> it, it really is. And Trudeau's Great Reset is going to be the fucking floor falling out beneath us. But anyways. Um, I eventually would love to like move to Texas. Like if I could live anywhere in the world, I think I'd want to live in Texas. Um, I'm partial towards three states. Massachusetts, because I think I'd do great in Boston. I went, I went to Boston for the first time last year. It's yeah. a beautiful, it's so clean. I think I would love living in Boston, but I would hate living in Massachusetts. Uh, hey, from Peabody. Hey, go down to Harvard Yard. It's, it really comes down to gun laws. They're right. too restrictive. Texas and Arizona. Are oh, Arizona for too, for sure. Arizona seems nice, but Texas is bigger, so I'd probably go with Texas. I'd like to be somewhere hot, but I mean, if if I, I would go to Montana, you know, I would be curious to check out Alaska, maybe not live there, but it's actually not as cold as here just doesn't have that much sun <laughs> no but also alaska is so small like i don't know i've lived in a city my whole life i don't know if i want to live in alaska or montana no. or something no I, I honestly texas even i could do florida too but it's just a little too crazy for me i feel like i don't want to live in florida because i know I, I have someone i know someone who, who who lives in florida and he's got his cc you know okay. which is cool uh and you know 
he worked hard and he was able to get, get his immigrate, he immigrate over there. And it, it's awesome. But, uh, I think it's just a little too crazy there. I mean, there's too many Florida men story. Florida. Now that you have Florida women story, like it's, it's scary. Florida seems a little too crazy yeah. for me. Um, and too humid. I don't know. Yeah. It's a swamp there. I don't like, like dry heat. I don't like summers in Montreal to begin with. I don't think I'd like it in uh, Florida. But Arizona is actually also a really cool place too, because like you said, very. They, they, don't they? Do they have a, a state tax? Because I, I think it's it's uh, Florida, um, Texas. Uh, so you have uh, Texas, Florida. Um, who else do you have? You have uh, Alaska, but we just talked about them. Alaska, I think it's Arizona and Oklahoma. There's there's like nine states that have like no... No state income tax? Yeah. Oh, that'd be awesome. But there is federal income tax. Well, yeah. You know? But I mean, you still have to pay taxes no matter where you are. Look, look on taxes. I, I am okay with a VAT, you know, value added tax or something, or like a sales tax. If you want to do business within a state, fine, cool, I get it. But it's just crazy that you're going to tax someone on their ability to to generate income. No, I think that sales sales taxes are theft. Sales taxes are the least like. It's terrible. Sales taxes are the worst tax because as a low income earner, your the vast majority of your income is going towards goods or services that are subject to tax. A, a sales tax. Wow. And so okay. you're losing more of your income relative to someone else, right? Right. So the wealthier you are, the less sales tax you're paying because you just have less to put your money on. You you could make a million dollars a year net. You're not spending that million dollars a year net, right? But if you make $30,000 a year net, chances are you're spending the entirety of that $30,000 a year net. And most of it, not all, is going to be on things subject to a sales tax. Wow. I did, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, no, sales tax scales terribly but, for lower class people. But, okay, in a, in a situation where you have um, more disposable income, right because yeah. you're being taxed left uh, less off the top end yeah right you could put, put like mitigate the fact that you're you're not making as much obviously we want to people need to get to places where they can make more money because every job that we do is a is an agreement that i will provide this labor or fulfill these tasks for this much an hour because yeah. we're essentially trading time for money the most successful successful and liberating business models are Models in which people are uh, have have compound interest on the time that they've invested, right? Mm-hmm. Or things that are like not linear, but like that that have room for growth. Mm-hmm. So look at merchandise. You could spend five hours to make a T-shirt or ten hours or whatever, mm-hmm. and you sell a T-shirt, and that T-shirt's still going to be that T-shirt, but it's going to make you more money, even though the only thing you have to do now is check the orders. You know what I'm saying? So. So it's there's an, a, a difference in the amount of time you spend. Now, people who spend, and, and this is a fact of life, we have to do this until you get find some means of, of not being in that mode. Um, people trade in time for money. And it's a really rough system because essentially 
part of your uh, life is servitude and servitude to sustain yourself or recreational. It's, it's part, it, you have to spend your time some way, yeah. right? You just want to do it in a way that's going to be beneficial and has the highest potential of growth and sustainability in the long term. Mm-hmm. But uh, so what, what, what is your stance on other taxes, let's say, as opposed to, let's say, just sales tax? I mean, obviously, I don't want to pay taxes any more than anybody else, but um, it's necessary that we pay taxes. And okay. I, like I said, I think sales taxes are really disproportionately heavy on lower income earners. Okay. I do agree with an income tax. I don't agree that income taxes should be like tax on tax, like the example in Quebec which is also the case of our sales tax. Basically, I don't agree with anything Quebec is doing tax-wise. It's not a, <laughs> it's not that bad of a thing, right? I think it'd be more worrisome if you did. I think that a progressive income tax is important because higher income earners don't necessarily... Reinvest it. Exactly. Which is what we were talking about before. There's no, there's no incentive <clears throat> to invest yeah. it, which is why if things were structured more on a local level, there'd be an incentive for you to spend the extra 15 million you have, extra 15 million, not whatever, whatever, whatever million you have, but you could invest that in the community uh, hockey arena or yeah. in some kind of infrastructure that benefits the society. See, that's the sort of thing that I would accept. So for example, for sports outreach programs in the community, if the municipal government or provincial government is interested to go around and approach high-income earners in the city of Montreal and ask them to donate, and that's going to be a tax-deductible contribution, that would make sense to me, you know? Yeah. So, because at least then those people are choosing in what way they'd like to dispose of their tax dollars towards the state. Right. Right. I really like that, actually. So, uh, all this to say that you have... Um, I think to find a way in which people are not incentivized to hoard money, to invest it into like the teams that they have that are going to then make them just turn them into a cash cow, you know, but you need to find a way to make it, to, to incentivize them to invest it into the the world around them. Right. As opposed to just in themselves. Right. Not into like self-containing mechanisms, but things that spill over. Ideally, you would want to, I mean, I'm just throwing this off the top of my head. It just came to me. Want to minimize as much as possible donations towards private charities and like nonprofits and maximize donations towards public initiatives. Right. Public works. Public works and things like that. Yes. So that way, for example, school renovations would not necessarily have to come out of a government budget. It would be coming out of like a donation fund set up by the municipality or whatever. Right. Um, I think that could be an interesting way to go about things, like experimentally. Um, But taxes is complicated. Very complicated. And so I think that there should be a pretty substantial... Uh, figure in which people do not pay a certain amount of tax granted like because then you also have you know universal basic income in which you have example a thousand dollars a month 
you know. Universal basic income is going to be a mistake. I think so too, but I think because I am really scared the 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 political up. Uh, yes, the f- the fiscal applica- uh, implications. As far are as the ser- political misuse, I don't see that being a problem because I think I, I'm, Canada has a, a good history and traditional of instituting large scale social programs without political misuse, like Social Security and Medicare and stuff. And so I think we can succeed there. The left is scary because as much as they want to uh, signal virtue, the, uh, signal the virtue, they're really the most uh virtueless group i think yes they are yeah but it's you have to be because they're by nature they're there to tear things down right so they've got to have fewer scruples right right there's got to be a this is a cost we're willing to pay sort of thing whereas the conservative mentality is more of a this is a cost we're already paying and we can live with that uh i think on the left side of things it's more of a this is a cost we have to pay now to make up for something later but because this is how i viewed it a little bit uh i view um that traditionally right because of the nature of, of let's say the liberal to Tear things, tear existing things down that aren't are unequal, right? To produce change, you had at the f- at the beginning of let's say liberalism, right, or the left, if you want to kind of make that distinction, you have uh, the 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 focus being on the individual as a liberal, right? That's what it's supposed to be, right? Individual ind- individuality and the ability for someone to. Reach some kind of self determination, you know, because something is missing from society, right? So it's it's it was always meant to be on the on the individual or the 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 um, uh, singular aspect of it, right? And conservative was always more the social aspect of uh, you know to make th- to maintain things, right? To maintain you know, and uh, of course, conservative values still have family and religion and all these other you know tendencies. But we live in an upside down, topsy turvy twilight world where now we have liberalism, which was initially something for to to uh, to to uh, get change and to get justice or or whatever we want to call it for an individual. Now it's groupthink. Mm-hmm. Now it's not become an individual thing; it's become a collective thing. And now conservatism, right, is the the individual. Uh, refuge for someone to be able to to have specific ideas yeah yeah and yes okay there's still a social implication to conservatism but when you look at it like it's conservatives who are fighting for free speech you know and certain rights that the left are not they want to infringe upon these rights so now it's not a matter of my rights are being infringed upon now it's i have to infringe upon your rights yeah and it just becomes uh, it's just a matter of where do they see the biggest gain of political political capital so the left sees it in restricting rights because they want to pander to whiny crybabies and the right sees it in maintaining rights because on one end they're supposed to want to maintain things and on the other they see that there's an existential threat to their existence if the ability to limit speech is curtailed because they see it's already the case in Europe. And I don't think the American right ever expected for the 
political reality of Europe to catch up to them in America. Scary. Yeah. So, so what would you give like as an example to that? <clears throat> like the UK? Well, the UK or France, for example. So like rhetoric that says we don't want immigrants and we want people to come speak uh, English in America and stuff like that. These are things that don't fly in Europe. That's like racist. That doesn't fly, you know? Uh, but in the states, it which is hilarious, does. which is hilarious, because let's say you look at the the French national team that won, mm-hmm. like the, the the World Cup, and you know, there apparently I don't want to you know mischaracterize, but from what I hear, that there is a significant amount of discrimination amongst like French, French mm-hmm. and and immigrants, mm-hmm. right? I think that kind of exists in every mm-hmm. society, but that's just something I've heard. You know, I'm not trying to marry myself to the idea because I've never been there. I don't know. But it's funny how you have, you know, a tradition, like a, like a culture like that, that's very maybe, or at least partly ethnophobic, mm-hmm. you know, xenophobic. And then you have their national team <laughs> and there's literally like two French people on it. <laughs> the wow. rest of them are immigrants or from, let's say, uh, uh, French speaking uh former colonies yeah well i mean money talks right and results talk right. so if that's what it takes to be proud of france that's what it <laughs> takes to be proud of france you know right um yeah so it's it's definitely a, a messy situation um to think about how the the, po- the political implications of of radicalism which just keep bleeding into different parts of the world but I think that with enough, you know, uh, authenticity, like you said, to things like where we come from, you know, history uh, and our philosophies and responsibility and trying to maintain, to ha- have virtue. Metacognition is one thing, but there's, it's not metacognizant to have virtue, you know, or aspire to have virtue, right? Because we, unfortunately, right, we... Unfortunately, fortunately, we have the gift of free will or free thought. Well, I think there are a lot of things that come naturally without like relying on like our ability to metacognate. Because, I mean, you can see animals save each other from pools right. and water on Facebook all day long if you want. Right. These, they know what's but they're right rare. And what's wrong. They're rare, but we have that ability more intrinsically. I think so, but don't you think that also kind of comes from the meta, meta to metacognate? As we've metacognated, we've developed a certain other sense of morality. Because in, in nature, there is no right, there's no morality in nature. It's like it's do or die. There's I, no right I, or wrong. I think it comes from the fact that we're inherently social uh, right. beings, right? As opposed right. to something that's more something more individualistic. So it helps us to pull somebody out of water or to help them up when they fall. Because there's that implied sense of community. And you see this, by the way, in the animal kingdom where you have, let's say, example, squirrels will fight each other, but if, or any type of animal that is, you know, social somewhat, they have obviously hierarchical hierarchical conflicts. But if there presents an opportunity to, like, example, let's say a a raven. Mm -hmm. If a raven uh, is attacking a squirrel, Mm -hmm. it's an it's entirely possible that another squirrel will come to aid the other squirrel because it's a bigger threat to have a predator such as the raven that can kill these things mm-hmm. 
right, one by one, as opposed as it is to have another squirrel that you could maybe have a higher percent chance to fight with, to grapple with, mm-hmm. and thus you you maintain, let's say, your health mm-hmm. by maintaining his his health because you're taking out a mutual predator as opposed to mm-hmm. you know having a predator at large because he you took someone out that can you know take some of your resources. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also brings up another point where I think it's very hard for us to tell what is natural, like natural right. human behavior and what is, is no longer, I guess, strictly natural human behavior, especially because as it stands, I mean, you brought up a good topic earlier. We don't hunt, make fire, fucking do any of these things that, you know, natural, we would consider natural human behaviors anymore. We're so far removed from all of that, that like, our ability to tell what comes naturally to us and isn't is hazy at best. Right. I think that's a good jump off point to, to kind of wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, thank you for doing this. And uh, I My think pleasure. I got, I think I got uh, the name for the podcast. Okay. Yeah, Metacognate. Okay. Or Metacognition. I don't know. It sounds good. It sounds pretty good. So thank you very much. And uh, we'll definitely run this back again. All right. My pleasure. And uh, we'll we'll talk soon. All right. Take care. Ciao.